Hello, and welcome. I'm Bill Coles, your host of Story and Fiction, the podcast. The podcast that brings you literary fiction stories read by the author. Today is the first installment of the novel, The Spirit of Want, by William H. Coles. The novel was a finalist in the William Faulkner Creative Writing Competition, and you can read more than 40 reviews online at storyliteraryfiction.com. Here is part one, the first podcast installment, podcast number 32. Chapter one, Luke, 1984. Luke Osborne drove two and a half hours north of Atlanta to the lake facility of the Atlanta Club to arrive after seven. Inside the clubhouse ballroom, more than 200 guests, mostly couples, gathered in daisy cluster conversation groups or sat at small round tables munching buffet-style dinner food served by waiters in white jackets and tuxedo pants. A layer of cigarette smoke hovered over the crowd and dimmed the lights from the two giant wedding cake-tiered crystal chandeliers. The mood was buoyant. Wine and cocktail glasses raised high in congratulatory toast as sweat beaded on the brows of men in tuxedos, and women, many in off-shoulder full-length gowns, clandestinely dabbed hankies and tissues to their underarms. These were the donors who had made the new Eye Institute possible, and A.J. McMeal had made it happen by wooing donors and securing public and private grants. He climbed onto the bandstand. He grabbed a microphone. The orchestra stopped with a drum roll. With a voice more exhausted than exuberant, he thanked the crowd for attending and for their generous giving. The bar would remain open until midnight. Thank you, thank you, thank you. At first, Luke chatted with M.D. colleagues he knew, then moved on to other stray singles or abandoned significant others. He had neither the social status nor money to be considered for a membership to the club. He tried to appear confident and justified in attending, although he really didn't know why A.J. had invited him. After an hour, A.J.'s wife, Agnes, sought him out and took his hand with more enthusiasm than was warranted by their few brief meetings over the years. Come, she said. I want you to meet my two babies. Luke had met her daughters, Lucy and Elizabeth, more than a few times before. Now they were standing together near the band, and neither seemed to recognize him when he was introduced. Agnes immediately excused herself to work the crowd. Lucy, a light bronze-skinned, dark-eyed, stunningly beautiful woman of thirty-four or five, stared at the singer on the bandstand without a word. Lucy was a lawyer famous for little tolerance for inferior intelligence. Engrossed in the music, she walked away. Impressive, Luke said to Elizabeth, gazing at the revelers in the ballroom. I'm proud of what my father's done, she said. She shared none of the stunning characteristics of her sister. But she was not unattractive. Her delicate features and sharp blue eyes complemented her blemishless fair skin. But her slightly overweight figure with sturdy legs and thick ankles had no resemblance to Lucy's slim beauty. Were you involved in the Institute? she continued. Not directly, Luke said. 
She seemed thoroughly bored, which, given the circumstances of conversation with someone she couldn't remember, he decided was forgivable, if not understandable. Are you a donor? she asked. I work with your father, he said. Oh, she thought for a few seconds. Haven't we met before? A few times, Luke said. Lucy returned to them, nibbling a bacon-wrapped scallop on a stick and stared. Who are you? she asked Luke. Mother told you, Elizabeth said. Luke Osborne, isn't it? He's in Daddy's department. The pleasure is mine, Luke said, nodding slightly to Lucy and offering his hand, which she ignored. Lucy would not look at Elizabeth. You're an eye surgeon, she said to Luke with a touch of disdain. Retina, Luke said. You don't like lawyers, do you? No surgeon likes lawyers. Don't start, Elizabeth said. I'm not starting, Lucy said. I stated a fact with which the doctor cannot disagree. Isn't that right, doctor? Luke said nothing. Lucy, her neck veins pulsing, looked at Elizabeth for many seconds. Do you do malpractice, Luke finally asked Lucy. She's a defense lawyer. Elizabeth said. I'm not an ambulance chaser, if that's what you're implying, Lucy said, glaring at Elizabeth, but talking to Luke. I don't think that's what he meant, said Elizabeth. That's what he thinks, Lucy said. You can't know what he thinks, Elizabeth said. He's a doctor. I worry about malpractice, Luke said. There are a lot of unnecessary suits. A lot of unnecessary harm done, Lucy said. Lucy turned to see the singer again, who had started another song. It's not just the mistakes that piss me off, it's the cover-up. Luke did not agree to oversimplification and partial truth, but he kept quiet. Elizabeth touched Luke's arm, her face faintly flushed, and side-glanced at her sister. Enjoyed seeing you, Elizabeth said. Luke expressed pleasure at seeing her, unable to suppress sarcasm. She leaned towards his ear. Sorry, she whispered so Lucy wouldn't hear. Elizabeth disappeared in the crowd. Lucy gave him a sardonic smile. We've been having a spat, Lucy said. She thinks I'm rude to the rich folk. Lucy paused, smiling ruefully. We fight all the time, since we were kids. Her voice had softened a bit. May I bring you a drink from the bar? Luke asked. Lucy held up her full martini glass. I get my own drinks, she said without a smile now. She turned and walked away with a little wobble in her gait. Enjoy yourself, she said over her shoulder. Luke was relieved she was gone, but he missed looking at her. Her beauty was the only pleasant memory about her, one glance cut up the heartbeat of a dead man. The crowd got louder. With drinks flowing, the intense chatter was punctuated with cries of mostly false delight and occasionally angry outbursts, so that comfortable conversation became almost impossible. Luke wanted to leave. He walked up to A.J. Congratulations, a great party, Luke said. A.J. laughed and leaned over to whisper confidentially, it's all bullshit, Luke. You know it. I know it. They've given a fraction of what they should. That seemed a little ungrateful. 
These people were big donors, some more than a million. Luke thought power had warped A.J.'s judgment over the years. I've got to get back. Surgery in the morning, Luke said. A.J. slapped him on the back. I'll walk you to the car. I can't hear in here, he said loudly. Did you valet? Luke had parked in a lot near the golf course. Outside, they walked side by side. I'd like to propose you for director of clinical research in the new building, A.J. said. There will be other candidates, of course, and the board will have final approval, but you're my man. What do you think? Luke closed his eyes briefly and took a long breath. I don't know, A.J. I appreciate your thinking about me, but I'm a surgeon more than a research administrator, and I'm not sure it's what I want to do at this stage of my career. It would put a rocket in your ass, my friend, boost you to the sky. It's an opportunity that won't come around again. The night shadows of mature pines that bordered the lot obscured the cars. They slowed their pace. Damn it, Luke said, pointing to his sedan. You can't drive that, A.J. said. Luke's sedan and two other cars were stripped. Tires, wheels, bumpers, mirrors, radio. The trunk lids were up, the trunks empty. Done by pros, A.J. said. Isn't there some security, Luke asked. They've increased patrols. They had a theft a couple weeks ago. The bastards came from the country road across the golf course. Big money in parts. I've got to get a ride, Luke said. There must be people going back tonight. A.J. nodded. Lucy's going back tonight. I thought you were staying over at your place for the weekend. We are, until Tuesday, but not Lucy. She doesn't like it here. The manager agreed to call police and arrange towing, and Luke walked out the front door of the club a few minutes later. The valet sat in a chair near one of two columns that supported the portico jetting out from the main building over the drive. Two couples stood talking in the hot, humid night air. Dr. Osborne? The valet asked. Luke nodded. The valet waved in the direction of a red Porsche. The lights flashed and the car moved forward. Luke opened the passenger door. Lucy, he bent down so he could see her. Get in, she said. Even in half silhouette, her profile was exquisite. A straight, well-proportioned nose, high cheekbones, and a graceful curve to her chin. He fastened his seatbelt. The interior air had a humid, sweet smell of alcohol mixed with the scent of flowered, freshly applied perfume and some mint-flavored mouthwash. She revved the engine. Her foot slipped off the clutch. The car jerked and the engine stalled. You okay, he asked. I'm not drunk, she said testily, if that's what you're implying. She started the car and drove cautiously down the curved access road that skirted the edge of the golf course on one side and the lake on the other. She eased through the stop sign at the T-junction with the country road. When she turned the wheel right, she pressed too hard on the accelerator and the car leapt forward. She was slow to compensate and the left tires went off the road. She braked to a stop. I'll drive, Luke said. Shut up, she said. She drove on seemingly in control, but after a half a mile stopped the car, got out, and walked gingerly heel to toe for a few feet, then strode into the night, taking her keys with her. 
Luke sat barely moving for five minutes. She was still out of sight when he decided to walk back to the club and hire someone to take him into town. He was about fifty yards on his way when she reappeared. I'm fine now, she yelled. He hesitated, wondering what was wise. A.J. was an important ally in the wars of academic medicine, and it was a risk to abandon his older daughter. Luke was sure A.J. thought of him as sort of a babysitter for the ride into town. Luke couldn't let A.J. down. Luke walked back. As he got into the car, Lucy took two white tablets from her purse, and with a swig from a half-empty bottle of Coke she extracted from under the seat, she washed them down. Feeling better? Luke asked. She cleared her head with a firm shake from side to side before inserting the key in the ignition after two unsuccessful jabs. Twenty minutes later, without speaking to Luke, she stopped at the access ramp to the interstate to mount a radar detector from the glove compartment on the windshield and then accelerated on the up-ramp headed for Atlanta. He gripped the door armrest as she merged into traffic, passing three cars on the right until the merging lane tapered to an end where she jerked the wheel to change lanes a few feet in front of a pickup and then jerked again, forcing the car into the far left fast lane. Luke's muscles tightened, and he pressed his feet hard against the floor. The moonless night left the countryside swept in darkness. He could make out shapes of houses and buildings, farms and fields, but no details. Then the car accelerated on the straightaway of the interstate. He leaned slightly left. The speedometer glowed a steady 85. I've forgotten what Elizabeth does, he said to keep Lucy thinking. She's a school teacher. Fourth grade. Ridiculous, really. No real money of her own. She lives off what Daddy gives her. Her irritation coated her slow-minded words, but her tone was sharp, and she seemed unwilling to talk about anything more. The motor whined at higher intensity as she increased speed. She was still ten miles an hour over the limit. The radar alarm went off. She braked and tucked in behind an 18-wheeler tanker. Bastards, she said. That thing works pretty well, Luke said, of the radar detector. Thankful it had slowed her down. She didn't comment. A few minutes later, the radar sputtered and stopped, and she left the protection of the big rig quickly accelerating. In the side rearview mirror, Luke saw the truck's lights diminishing, like two fading stars at near light warp speed. Where's your wife? Lucy said, now in overdrive at 15 above the limit. Dolores, isn't it? Samantha, Luke said, we're no longer married. She concentrated on the road. Divorce? He paused. She killed herself, he said. The mention of Samantha brought guilt. He still thought he might have done more to prevent it, but he didn't really miss her. Toward the end, she was hard to be around, tense and confrontational, a hollow, angry person, and he'd never really known her before or understood her after she died. Lucy slowed in a stretch where trees and foliage provided good hiding places for police, 
and settled into the monotony of driving the interstate, now darkened by growing cloud cover. Her head slowly nodded. The car drifted to the right. She jerked awake, adjusting to keep on the road. But a few minutes later, the car lurched as it left the paved road, the bottom scraping gravel and rocks, and she whipped the wheel left and brought the car back on the road. Stop, Luke said. I want to drive. I'm fine. You're not fine. You're falling asleep. She refused to answer. Relax, she said. I'm an excellent driver. Impulsive, Luke thought, and not safe at any speed. She was silent for a while. After many minutes, she said with a new apologetic tone, I hate those parties at AJ's. I drink when I'm unhappy. Why go, Luke asked. She drove intently now, with a contemplative frown. He commanded we be there, she said. He likes the family at fundraisers. It makes him appear magnanimous and paternal. Isn't he, Luke asked. She thought for a while. You know him. He thinks about himself. Strange coming from her, the most self-centered by far in a covey of egoists. She slowed down. He doesn't like what I've become, she said. Because you're a lawyer? I don't think it's that, she said. Although her driving was better, her speech was still fuzzy-edged. A.J. must have been one bear of a father, Luke thought. Authoritative, uncompromising, unreasonable. He's always seemed proud of you, Luke said truthfully. He treats Elizabeth well. She's his own. She has his nose, those arched brows. She's not as smart as he is, but she thinks like he does. There were no physical similarities between Elizabeth and Lucy. Lucy had cured leather, tanned skin, dark, hard eyes, reddish-brown shoulder-length hair. She was about five feet five, and her figure was thin and muscular, but indisputably feminine and her clothes were perfectly tailored in contrast to Elizabeth, who was about the same height and wore altered expensive designer clothes, but was a little too chunky in spots, and nothing seemed to exactly fit. I have five siblings, Luke said, each their own person. But you get along well? I guess, he said, better than most, although I rarely hear from them anymore, except from my sister who's in grad school at Princeton. Journalism. She's your favorite? I feel protective of her. She's the youngest. I don't like Elizabeth most of the time, Lucy said. I don't like to be around her. Luke said nothing. Few know, and it's never discussed, but I'm the adopted one, Lucy said. It's tiresome. Adoption was new to Luke. I never do anything right, Lucy added. They say that, Luke asked. Of course not. It's how they act. They chose to adopt you, didn't they? They must have wanted you. I'm told Father flew down twice to Puerto Rico to check me out. I was 13 months old when they got me. My real name was Lucy Rivera. I think they probably adored me until Elizabeth came along two years later. You seem to have everything, Luke began. Except pride and respect, Lucy said. She had sobered a little, 
but still the booze made her maudlin. I don't believe that, Luke said. They seem proud of what you've done. They're racist. Oh, they don't hang people. But deep down in Never Tell Land, they don't think colored folk can think or reason like whites. They still like those pickaninnies that tap dance for coins in New Orleans, for Christ's sake. Mother says, they're oh, so cute. You're their daughter, Luke said. Adopted daughter, believe me, there's a difference. And I'm black. I thought you were Puerto Rican. My great-grandfather on my mother's side was black. That's what A.J. told me once. You're still Puerto Rican. Anyway, that doesn't make them dislike you. Bullshit to that. For years they talked about it. As if adopting me was a magnanimous gesture to the underprivileged in mind and body. She should quit drinking, Luke thought. Alcohol muddled her brain. Well, no one would know you're black, he said. Stop worrying about it. That's a racist thing to say. Her tone was testy again. Why would I worry about being black? I worry about parents who see me as inferior and embarrassing because they think I'm black. You know what I mean, Luke said. You meant I'm black but can pass for Puerto Rican. I don't like that. The world should see me as who I am. No offense, Luke said. She'd made this argument before. She passed a car and pulled back into the right lane. After thirty minutes, her head seemed to clear a little more. She was speeding again. I got a little crazy back there, she said, flashing a smile. I didn't mean that stuff about family. Her voice was softer. Elizabeth is great in her own way. She slowed as she approached the city. Ahead, under an exit sign, orange and white reflective cones glowed in the headlights. Is the exit closed, she said. There's an arrow, Luke said. She leaned forward, squinting. I don't care about arrows. Can we get off? No barriers I can see. She turned right too late to cleanly clear the cones. Bang, bang, bang. The fourth cone caught under the carriage. She geared down, cut the wheel left and right. The cone freed and the scraping stopped. Luke turned to look out through the rear window. There's a cone on the highway. You want me to back against traffic for a cone, she said. It might be dangerous. Stop here. I can walk back and move it. That's ridiculous, she said. It's reflective. No one can miss it. She drove on. Maneuvering on the narrow roads at the outskirts of northwest Atlanta in the high-end residential section required new concentration. Two-lane roads snaked through heavily wooded lots with houses hidden in the tree landscaping of the properties, each home accessed by a private drive that could bridge a creek or a gully or mount a hill to circle in front of a majestic entrance. Many home fronts had columns two and three stories high. The Porsche entered curves tight to the center line as Lucy downshifted for control. Luke stared ahead into the dark. Police were rare on these roads, and she sped up at the height of a sharp curve, the car dangerously gravitating to the far side of the pavement. Only once did an oncoming car weakly illuminate the trees ahead. She geared down, and a few seconds later, as the Porsche crested the hill, she squinted in the glare of headlights. When the imageless dark took over again, with only the instrument panel glowing, 
she could see only for a few car lengths in the tight curves. The car descended a hill, curved right, and crossed a stone bridge. The road disappeared over the short, steep rise. The car rose as if on a ramp, giving a touch of weightlessness. The eyes of a small animal reflected in the car lights, two bright holes in a dark background. The eyes disappeared as the headlights were directed away. God damn, she screamed. It was some breed of poodle, then it was out of sight. She braked. She cranked the wheel. The car skidded. Tires screeched on dry macadam. A definite thump, but no feeling. What was that, Luke said. The dog, maybe, he thought. The car lurched to the left as it left the road. Lucy's head snapped forward and Luke braced his hands on the dashboard. The car went into a left side forward skid. She whipped the steering wheel left. The front wheels dipped into the dirt at the roadside. The car rolled, going down, hitting a tree and turning 180 degrees. The front lights went out as the chassis propelled backward and down. The rear end crunched with scrapes of metal and cracking glass. Are you all right, Lucy said. Luke couldn't see in the dark. Within seconds, the shapes of trees emerged in the night. Lucy was half out of the car. Are you all right? she asked again, her voice quivering. Talk to me. Luke moaned from the sudden sharp pain in his leg. She was out of the car now, leaning toward him. One rear taillight still glowed weakly, and her face took on an extraterrestrial hue. Can you open the door? she asked. A pine trunk blocked the door a few inches to his right. A jagged lower edge was all that was left of the window. I don't think so, Luke said hoarsely. You'll have to crawl over the gearbox, he said. Can you do that? He clutched the wheel and pulled himself over the stick shift head first and crawled out of the car. Lucy pulled on his shirt to help. Can you walk, she asked. He didn't answer, instead rising slowly to stand and then testing his mobility. She climbed on all fours up the side of the steep embankment. He followed grasping saplings and tree limbs for support. At the top of the ravine, the center line on the road was barely visible. We've got to find a house with a phone, she said over her shoulder. He followed her, a searing pain shooting up his leg with each step as he limped along. Luke caught up when Lucy stopped at the entrance to a private drive to wait for him. "'What's wrong with your leg?' she asked. "'Cut,' he said. "'We'll get help.' He followed her up the drive. The dark, pointed roof of an Elizabethan-style mansion cut a wedge into the barely illuminated, clouded night sky background. Spotlights suddenly glared from the house and the top of the three-car garage. Lucy shielded her eyes with her hands. Stop, a voice said. No one was visible. We tripped something, she whispered to Luke. She turned toward the voice. We had an accident, she called. My friend is hurt. Luke's head was swimming. His good leg shook uncontrollably. A man in a robe, pajamas, and dress loafers approached. He held a double-barrel shotgun, the barrels at eye level. Let me see your hands, the man said. We're not thieves, Lucy said. She put her hands high overhead. You, the man said to Luke. Up. Luke was too weak to raise his hands much above the shoulders. Higher. The man came closer and lowered his weapon. My God, he said, staring. 
Lucy turned to Luke. You're covered with blood, she said almost accusingly. Luke lay down on the drive. I'll call an ambulance, the man said. Luke blacked out. Chapter 2 Luke A few days after Luke was sutured and x-rayed and observed for 24 hours in a trauma holding unit and still not able to return to work, the intercom bell from the condo security desk awakened him in the middle of the night. Lucy McMeal, the concierge said, and her associate. Luke told the concierge to send them up. He slept on his long white terry cloth robe, tying his sash loosely to avoid pain. The front gate to show silk pajama bottoms and bare chest taped from armpit to waist. The left leg of his pajamas bulged with the protective bandaging still required to prevent bleeding. The elevator to the top floor apartment opened at the end of the hall. Luke moved to the front door peephole from habit. Lucy walked toward the apartment, distorted in the minute lens but still beautiful in her exotic way. He opened the door before she knocked. Lucy smiled apologetically, and a tall, older man with a gaunt look stood behind her in the hall. "'I thought your leg was cut,' Lucy said. Luke shrugged. "'It's the cracked ribs that keep me awake.' "'Peter Townsend,' the man said from behind Lucy." Luke didn't respond, still holding the door open and blocking their entrance. What's up, he said. Thanks for seeing us, Townsend said. The tow truck driver found a body, Lucy said. Luke stared, not comprehending for a minute. It was on the same side of the road in a ditch, but not near the car. It had nothing to do with the accident, Townsend said. Could we talk, Lucy asked. Luke backed from the door to let them in. Can we sit down somewhere, she said, motioning to Townsend and moving toward the living room. Lucy sat with Townsend on a curved sofa. Luke eased painfully into an overstuffed armchair. There was an awkward silence. Luke was fully awake now. It's gotten complicated, Lucy said. The accident, I mean. The DA has hated me since law school. They went to Yale together, Townsend interrupted. It's an opportunity to ruin me, she said, almost breathless. A woman's body was found near the accident, by the roadside. It was the widow of Judge Fogarty, Lucy said loudly. The family is crying for justice, and they don't even know how she died. They just say she was in excellent health, and we think the DA's investigation is to prove vehicular homicide. Even though the autopsy results haven't been completed, there's no evidence... The car's been impounded. Lucy breathed deeply and exhaled. And they bended the club, asking questions about the party. She uncrossed her legs and leaned forward. They're trying to prove I was under the influence. Townsend started to say something, but Lucy threw him a glare. What does this have to do with me? Luke asked. We're sure the investigators will contact you tomorrow, Townsend said. It's this morning now, Lucy said to Townsend. Then she turned to Luke. We want to know what you'll remember. They'll ask you about everything that went on for the entire evening, she said. You don't think she was drunk, do you, Townsend said. I didn't examine her, Luke said. I was there as a favor to her father. 
but you were a passenger. You wouldn't have gotten in a car voluntarily for a two-hour ride on an interstate with a drunk, would you? Townsend asked. Only for A.J., Luke thought. You didn't see a woman, Lucy stated. We couldn't have hit that woman. We would have known, she said. How would I know for sure, Luke said. We were in a skid. I felt jolts. The sounds for a few seconds were very loud. But if you hit a woman, you would know, wouldn't you, Townsend said. You were in the front seat of a small car, not the back seat of a bus. I couldn't say, Luke said. I can't prove a negative. Did you hear anything like a body, Lucy asked. I heard a lot of things, Luke said. But nothing like hitting a human, Townsend said. I heard a thump as we left the road. I remember that. But I don't remember thinking we hit something. Even if I had thought about it, I would have thought of a dog. The dog was found unhurt, Lucy said, dragging its leash on a lot a few hundred yards away. Could it have been a mound of dirt, a rock, a tree root? Townsend asked Luke. It could have been any of those, Lucy said before Luke could answer. Lucy and Townsend looked to Luke, who lightly caressed the surgical tape around his ribcage. You finished? Luke asked. We didn't have an agenda, Townsend said. Luke winced. It's late, Counselor. Too late to bullshit. We wanted you to know about the investigation, Lucy said. You wanted to keep me from putting a noose around your neck, Luke said. She paused. That's untrue. And it's unethical. Her eyes, still veiled to revealing any real emotion, had a tint of pleading. Will you? she asked. Luke looked at her intensely. I'll tell what I remember. Nothing more, nothing less. But you're sure we didn't hit that woman? Luke sighed. I don't know. Are you sure you weren't driving? Townsend said with acrid contempt. That's not appropriate, Lucy said, glaring at Townsend. Luke stood. Time to go, counselors. You've been up too long without proper sleep. Peter didn't mean anything, she said. Peter meant that if I didn't say the right things, he'd involve me in any way he could. I don't like that. That's not what I meant, said Townsend. He's the best of criminal lawyers, Lucy said. That's why I brought him. If the D.A. takes this to a grand jury, you'll be subpoenaed. Peter's the best. Luke made no attempt to shake Townsend's hand as he pointed them toward the door. Lucy held out her hand and then thought better of it. She hugged Luke instead, giving him a peck of a kiss on the cheek. Luke closed the door and watched her through the peephole. He heard them as they waited for the elevator to arrive. That was stupid to say, Lucy said. Lawyer voice, Townsend said. He can't hear, she said, but she did speak more softly. It'll make him cautious, Townsend replied. It just made him angry. Look, I know that woman died of blunt trauma, like from an automobile, not the heart, and I think they'll find evidence on the car, blood, pieces of clothing. Damn it, Peter, I thought you were my advocate. I think Winkler will go for manslaughter, I think your friend here will be his key witness. To a thump? To driving while intoxicated, leaving the scene of an accident. We didn't know about the woman. 
You crashed a sports car on the road. That's reckless driving. You didn't call the police, even after you got to a phone. Don't articulate the obvious. It was the wrecker that found the body. That's guilty behavior, especially for a lawyer. I called them to tow the car. The next morning, there was no reason to call the police. You screwed up. I'd get to know this guy real well, Lucy. There were injuries. I'd neutralize him as a witness. He'll have to go before a grand jury if it comes to that. God, what a thought. Think about it. Use that legal brain to make it work. The elevator dinged and the door opened. The investigators questioned Luke the next day. Lucy called Luke when he was finished. How did it go? she asked. Fine, I think. I told them what I knew. Did it take long? Two hours. It must have been grueling. He didn't reply. Were they tough? Professional, I thought reasonable. It wasn't an interrogation. Is it going to a grand jury, he asked. I don't know. The evidence on the car was inconclusive. So my testimony is like uh, live or die. Could you go to jail? I don't think so. But it's possible. She paused. I don't know. A week later, Lucy asked Luke if he wanted to go to dinner. This was a first try at neutralizing him, he thought. But he was widowed, with only rare female companionship these days, and Lucy was a very attractive woman. Any day this week, Lucy said. Since the accident, images of Lucy came to Luke at odd times, and he had a dream where she was present, it seemed, but didn't have a role. The next morning she was all that stayed with him from the dream. It would be fun for me, she said. He accepted. She wore a dress above the knee, short-sleeved, and with a V-neck so that a ruby pendant fell in the soft glow of her tanned skin. He was charmed and pleased. She was pleasant and agreeable, a completely different person than the times he had known her before. She was lively, caring, speaking of her childhood with charming animated finger and hand gestures. She spoke warmly about her family, as if all she had said before the accident about them had been forgotten. Elizabeth was a dear, a teddy bear of a sister. Lucy talked about her love of movies and how she usually went alone to late-night shows after work to relax. She loved romances. Over a linen draped table for two, she stared intently, her face accented by warm shadows in the dim light of candles. Luke told her about his passive mother and domineering father, his main birth and Massachusetts upbringing, and his five siblings with his vastly different feelings for each. She laughed sincerely at his humor. He enjoyed the time. He found himself remembering almost every word of their conversation. He was convinced he had misjudged her purpose. She was so much more than she seemed on first meetings. So a week later, he called her and asked her to dinner. This time they talked about politics, pop culture, advancement in science. With a touch of concern at her unbroken attentiveness, he once asked her if she was still neutralizing him as a witness. Are you still worried about the DA, he asked. 
For an instant, she was surprised and puzzled, as if unable to remember where he might have gotten such an idea. I don't know, she said. Now she turned cold and professional. Do you think about it? Of course I think about it. Do you ever believe you hit that woman? She sipped from a glass of wine. That's unlikely. But possible? I think we'd know. Still no direct evidence? We don't know. The DA is not forthcoming. Luke looked away. I worry about it, he said, that something might have happened. My God, what is there for you to worry about? She leaned forward intently. It was an accident, she said. Drinking might make you responsible, he thought, but he said nothing. I reacted to that animal, and nothing I drank affected my responses in any way, she hesitated. My God, you know that, don't you? She was under the influence when they left the club. He was sure of that. But that was more than three hours before they got to Atlanta. Well, she asked. I don't know, he said. Even if there was contact, she said. She was dead or we'd have seen her with the dog. You're right, he said. Forget it. But he wasn't sure, and he was concerned if under oath he were asked about her intoxication what he would say. He was a doctor, after all, not inexperienced in judging someone's physical and mental competency. After that, they could not find topics to talk about, and the evening ended early by mutual consent. Luke's doubt about Lucy festered over the next few days. Her denial of possible complicity worried him, and she didn't seem to have any concern for the dead woman, whether she had been involved or not. But there was nothing to do. Who would ever know if there was even a trace of blame for Lucy causing or hastening that poor woman's death? Although he thought about Lucy occasionally, he did not contact her for weeks. He had made sure Lucy was out of his future, at least on a personal level. When her mother invited him to a lunch at their house, followed by an en masse attendance at the Tech Georgia football game that was in Atlanta that year, he didn't like luncheons or football, and the thought of seeing Lucy made him pause. But he doubted Lucy would choose to be there, and he valued A.J.'s friendship and support. A day later, he accepted. Chapter 3 Luke Lucy's mother's luncheon was a sit-down, full-course lunch for nine guests seated at two tables and catered by a local restaurant by four staff. Luke's place card was set next to Elizabeth, Lucy's sister, with Lucy in profile at a larger table a few feet away. Elizabeth wore a tight-fitting print dress that exposed her full round arms and suggested the curve of her breast. She smiled frequently, at times inappropriately, and chatted nervously about trivia with an inoffensive gusto. Before the entree was served, Elizabeth touched Luke's hand to get his attention. Are you worried about Lucy's grand jury? She said. It's all we talk about now. I hope I'll never have to go, Luke said. The DA thinks he will have enough evidence, Elizabeth said. Vehicular manslaughter. Lucy's distraught. 
Luke looked to Lucy, who seemed bored but not distraught. A servant placed the main course plate before Elizabeth. Luke waited to be served. Elizabeth picked up her fork, pausing in midair. It must be awkward for you, Luke. You were the only witness. What will you say if you're subpoenaed? I'll tell only what I remember, he said. But I can't make any judgments on whether alcohol influenced the accident. Do you think she hit that woman? It was a surprise to me, Elizabeth. I don't really know. The autopsy didn't conclusively determine a cause of death, Elizabeth said. Luke had thought a lot about appearing before a grand jury. It would be almost impossible to deliver accurate testimony without swaying the jury in ways not suggested by the facts. Of course Lucy had been drinking, but there was no way to know if it affected her driving performance hours later. A blood alcohol was never drawn. It was too late the day after, and there would always be suspicion that Lucy's never reporting the accident was deliberate to delay the test. The jury would take those facts and interpret them in an emotional cloud of a judge's healthy wife dying without clear cause. And they wouldn't like Lucy as a lawyer, whom they would see as privileged and resent her success. We all know she had a lot to drink at the party, Elizabeth said. She hates those parties. It's the only time I ever see her drink too much. Luke swallowed a piece of dry chicken. I don't think about it, he said. But he did. A lot. Surely you know if she was drunk, Elizabeth said. You're a doctor. I did not function that night as a doctor, Luke said. Elizabeth frowned. You got in the car for a two-and-a-half-hour drive. You must have thought about it. She was drinking when Mother introduced us to you. I'm not judgmental, he said. Elizabeth abruptly turned to her lunch partner on the other side and asked about the weather. In A.J.'s seasonal block of stadium tickets, Lucy sat next to Luke. She leaned close. Mother thinks you're a perfect match for Elizabeth. What does Elizabeth think? Luke asked. Don't look, but she's staring at you now. She's willing to be a perfect match for almost anyone. Luke smiled. I don't think that's true. She didn't seem very friendly to me. She's desperate for children, Luke. That's why she's teaching. It's a way to be with the kids. She certainly doesn't need to work. She's got money for life. Luke decided not to answer. Finally, he said, the luncheon was fun. She laughed. Don't bullshit a bullshitter. He couldn't stay annoyed with her. He smiled. She took his hand and he enjoyed the feel of her soft skin. The crowd stood and the opening kickoff sailed into the air. He glanced at her beauty again. The air made her skin radiant. And as she sat close, he soon came to await the quick smile, warm and engaging. And her brown eyes, always in motion, as if searching for danger, maybe. Or opportunity. She was so bright and so confident. He now believed she wasn't really afraid of anything. He knew she was ambitious, but that seemed an asset. And all his reservations about her submerged, her reasons for being with him, her quick temper, her bitterness about being adopted. In that instant, he knew he cared for her more than any woman he'd ever known. He feigned interest as the game progressed. 
but he cared little for the game itself or the teams. It was difficult to talk with the noise, and Lucy stayed somewhat subdued among the rabid fans, gazing around into the stands and rarely looking at the field. After the half, Lucy's mother, Agnes, excused herself when she found someone whom she knew in another section. She left saying goodbye to her guest just before the last quarter. She's going to the car, Lucy said. They drink sherry straight from the bottle. It happens at every game I've ever attended. Luke smiled. Georgia was ahead 38-7 to by the fourth quarter. He leaned to Lucy. Let's go, he said. We could drive to Callaway. We still have time to enjoy the gardens. Really? she asked. He couldn't help but laugh. On my honor. She tightened her grip on his arm. I'd like that, she said. Amazing. She really did seem to want to go and not just to get out of the stadium. He was beyond being suspicious. Outside the stadium, they scuttled through the parking lot to the car, her hand in his. Within weeks, Luke was subpoenaed to appear before a grand jury. He hired a lawyer, but not Peter Townsend, whom Lucy had recommended. The lawyer promised to help prepare and said he might be allowed to counsel him outside the courtroom during the hearing. No defense lawyers were allowed in the proceedings, however. Luke was careful during the proceedings never to offer an opinion about things he could not know. He admitted to seeing Lucy drinking, but was careful not to conclude she was under the influence at the time of the accident. He emphasized that if a woman had been hit, dead or alive, the possibility never occurred to him until he was told days after the accident. But the testimony must have seemed guarded. Surely the jury thought his agenda was to protect Lucy, that he was unwilling to state the obvious. And he felt bad for Lucy, that he might have contributed to their decision. She was indicted and charged with vehicular manslaughter. Chapter 4 Luke Six months later, Luke stood beside Lucy before a justice of the peace. Only her trusted legal assistant, Carrie Malroy, attended. Family would have wanted a church wedding with social prominence, and Lucy was determined never to allow family to take charge of her wedding or, for that matter, anything in her life. And neither she nor Luke wanted to delay. Luke's parents were too infirm to travel, and most of his siblings had no time to prepare to exit their lives, and the only one who could wouldn't for a second marriage. So the other required witnesses were strangers. They honeymooned in St. Thomas, Virgin Islands. Every morning Lucy would wake and say, I love you. And Luke would tell her how lucky he was to have her as his best friend. Then she worked in the room, telephoning her office and clients. Before noon, she bookmarked her required reading for later that day, and they would stroll on the beach, boat around the island, or play tennis on the hotel's courts. Luke thought she was a miracle. In comparison to Samantha, she was vibrant and interesting. Of course, she was seriously driven to succeed, but he continued to find that stimulating in ways he could not explain. And during their time on the island, Luke never considered that she had any reason for marrying him other than just caring. 
She did care. He would always believe that. When Peter Townsend called to give news that the D.A. had decided to drop charges of manslaughter, the relieved smile on Lucy's face was a welcome sight. He held her as tears of relief streamed down her face. On the fourth day, Lucy lay full length face up in a bikini in an extended folded chair flattened at almost horizontal. Luke read a book sitting in a chair next to her, his head down, his legs crossed. Lucy's eyes were closed, but she wasn't asleep. A wizened old black man, close to five feet high, barefoot and wearing shorts, a T-shirt, and a backward baseball cap, approached Lucy. "'You two Marys?' he asked. "'Get lost,' she said, keeping her eyes closed. Luke sat up and put both feet on the sand. A towel slipped off his leg, where a nine-inch scar still healed red and thick on his thigh. "'A gift for the bride,' the black man said. "'Go away, I'm not a bride.' "'You too young for a bride,' he said, grinning. "'You've got nothing I want,' Lucy said. She screwed the top back on a sunscreen tube. "'Why you be so mean?' the man said. "'Look,' she said, "'we've come a long way to be alone.' Where are you from? The hotel, she said. No, in the States, the man said. Ohio, Akron, Ohio, Lucy said. My wife and me go to States once. Florida, he smiled. He had crooked teeth and an incisor missing, and Lucy looked away. Pester someone else, she said. Here, the man said, digging into his shorts pocket and handing a small rectangular slip of purple paper to Luke. "'You be happy, you two, the man said. "'What the hell is that?' Lucy said. Luke stared at the slip. "'Bluebeard's Restaurant. Buy one entree, get one free as long as it's cheaper or equal in value.' "'That's ridiculous,' Lucy said. "'You buy two entrees, and you pay the price of the more expensive.' "'Don't be technical,' Luke said.' It's a scam. Harmless, Luke said, just poorly worded. Get out, Lucy said sharply to the man. Wait, Luke said. He reached for his wallet under a towel and took out a $10 bill, which he handed to the man. God bless, the man said, turning and shuffling away. Lucy waited until the man was out of hearing. Don't ever deride me in front of others, she said her eyes hard with anger. I wasn't deriding you, Luke said. Don't do it. Give me that trash money. He's poor, Luke said. Lucy turned away, bending down to pick up her towel and beach gear. I'm going to shower. I'll come with you. She looked at Luke. I want to be alone, Luke. Oh, don't, Luce. She paused. It's more than just that creep, she said. What then? Luke said. But she turned and left without speaking. Luke sat back down. He turned pages, but couldn't read and stayed alone on the beach for another two hours, uncertain about invading Lucy's privacy. At seven the next morning, they were showered and ready for breakfast before a morning on the beach when Carrie Malroy, from Lucy's office, called. Lucy was cheerful without a hint of irritation. 
Luke sat on the bed while Lucy stood near the bedside nightstand holding the phone, listening intently. She hung up. The memory of their argument on the beach lurked in both of them, and neither was willing to mention it for fear of anger returning. I've got to go back, she said. He stood. Tomorrow? I've got to try for today. She threw things in a single small suitcase, yanking clothes off hangers, laying out the gray business suit she wanted to wear back. What's going on? Luke asked. A chance for lead defense? She was pushing down on the suitcase lid, fumbling with the latch. Some evangelist accused of rape, she added. Guilty? Probably. But he still will need a defense. Not pro bono? Luke asked, miffed that work was coming before honeymoon. Not pro bono, she said. Lucrative, he asked. She stopped packing. Probably. Her lips were a tight line. Is that all right with you, she said. She must still be upset about yesterday. The poor guy on the beach. It's an aggressive question, she said. As if I'm some sleazeball shyster or something. I didn't say that. Oh, yeah? That's how you sounded. I just don't know how you defend those you think are guilty. Everyone has a right to a defense. We're trained to be objective. A sex offender, for Christ's sake, Luke said angrily. It's the way justice works, she said. I serve the system. What about the victims? They're represented. He turned away. Don't be so self-righteous, she said. You're no angel. There has to be a better way to make a living, he said. She slammed down the suitcase top. I married a jerk. Luke walked out onto the small balcony, closing the French doors behind him, and did not move to come back into the room until she had left. Chapter 5. Lucy The next day at 6 a.m., Lucy and one of her senior partners, Alan McCormick, waited at the county jail for the prisoner to be escorted into the holding room. Fifteen minutes later, guards escorted in Howard Bain, chained hand and foot, and shoved him into a chair at a small table. Two guards positioned outside the door. "'Who are you?' Bain asked, looking up at the standing lawyers, his eyes dark under heavy eyebrows fixed on Lucy's face. "'Lucy McMeal, Johnson, McCormick, Lippincott, and Furman.' Alan McCormick, Alan said, standing slightly to Lucy's left and behind her. A woman, Bain said. A competent woman, McCormick said. Really? The church has already paid the retainer, McCormick said. I and the church hired the firm. We've never heard of Ms. McMeal. Well, she's well known, McCormick said. By whom? The legal community. The unjustly accused, McCormick said. This won't go to trial, Bain said. What makes you think that, Lucy asked. It's not true. That it was consensual? Don't try to trap me, Counselor. It never happened. Look, McCormick said, if this goes to trial, you'll need a woman working the jury. I want Peabody or whatever that guy's name is in Los Angeles. I'll hire him. 
Panetta, Lucy said. He's not taking cases. He's on chemo and radiation for some cancer. He's not as good as Ms. McMeal, McCormick said. That's bullshit, Bain said. He's the best. They've got a video surveillance tape of you alone with the girl. Did you know that? It's been on television, Lucy said. There are probably many. Doesn't prove rape. Give me a break, lady. I'm Miss McMeal to you, Lucy glared at him. Ms. McMeal? Don't ever forget it, Lucy said. Bain remained impassive. I'll defend myself. And the jury will take two hours to send you to prison for life. I'll take the public defender. You won't qualify, Lucy said. You're wasting time, McCormick said. We need to get started. Then you, man, Howard Bain said. Our entire firm will be behind you. But Lucy has the credibility men don't have, especially in underage sex trials. Bain relaxed in his chair. He flashed a flirtatious smile. Let's be practical, Bain said, looking at Lucy. I don't want jealous jurors eyeing my lawyer like she doesn't deserve to be good-looking. Lucy recoiled at his sexism. The D.A. will load the jury with atheists, not jealous women, McCormick said. Howard Bain stared at Lucy for many seconds. If you're no good, I'll fire you. That's always your option, Lucy said, hesitant to still want this case. Damn right. Just keep it in mind, Bain said. Lucy pulled out sheets of paper from a file. McCormick handed her an ink pen, which she handed to Bain, and she asked the guard to send in the notary. Lucy forgot to call Luke after the meeting with Bain. Their just-purchased 8,000-square-foot penthouse was being refloored, and to avoid the mess, she went to the Four Seasons Hotel close to the courthouse. She showered and ordered soup and salad from room service. She thought about Luke then, but still didn't call. She wasn't going back to St. Thomas yet. She'd used the case as an excuse. Of course she could go back if she wanted, but she didn't want to. She'd known it when she left. She'd have to lie about her dislike of the place, pretend it was paradise, and she was tired of acting happy, tired of pretending to have a good time. Why was marriage special anyway? She'd have to face it soon, but with the Bain case and being freed up from the manslaughter worry, her life would be busy, and her career could again become what she wanted it to be. Of course she'd have to call Luke, but not tonight. She'd do it in the morning. She called Luke the next morning. I'm sorry, baby, she said. Our first fight. Luke said he missed her. My fault, he said. I didn't mean anything by it. It was the lawyer stuff, Luke. Pretend I never said it. I've got to stay to investigate this guy. The girl was underage. What does he say? He's denied it to the press, of course, but he's an arrogant, powerful man who I think would lie if he thought the truth might damage his mission. Can you get back tomorrow? He'll probably have a bail hearing coming up. I can't. Luke paused longer than was necessary. Not at all. You know I love you, she said. You're not still angry about the guy on the beach? Of course not, you silly. 
but it will be intense here for the next few weeks. Luke paused again. I miss you, he said. I wish it wasn't this way, she said. I can pack and be at the airport within an hour. I'll get on standby. Call me when you get in, she said. I probably won't be able to pick you up. But she probably could, she thought. Chapter 6 Lucy Lucy arrived at the Apostolic Church of Christ compound in North Georgia before nine. Howard Bain did not tell her why, but his second-in-command, Jason Campbell, was assigned to talk to her. She needed to interview church members about the charges. She needed to know who supported Bain and who didn't and why. She parked in a designated paved lot outside the gates. The church owned more than 10,000 acres of contiguous land much of it mountainous. At least 3,000 church members lived on the grounds and accommodations that had once been a summer Methodist retreat. Some of the sleeping facilities, dining halls, and an auditorium were still used, but many new buildings, including a four-story administration complex and a church auditorium that seated 5,000 and served as the studio for a weekly Sunday telecast on cable, dominated the area. After identifying herself to the guard, she entered through electronically controlled swinging gates that blocked the two-lane road. A pleasant young black youth took her in a golf cart to administration, where Jason Campbell greeted her and took her to his second-floor office with a floor-to-ceiling view window that looked over the community to the mountains. People bustled between living quarters and work sites where crafts were made for sale. Musicians and singers practiced in two open-air, large, concrete, rectangular function areas covered with tiled, pointed roofs, supported with painted wood pillars on the corners. Impressive, Lucy said, nodding to the view. She noticed two large huts that Campbell told her processed food on the grounds. It's all Howard, he said. He's brought so many to accept Jesus. Can you get in without accepting Jesus? Lucy asked. You must be committed to Christ to live here, Campbell said, or be seeking redemption. He poured coffee from a thermos into a paper cup for Lucy. Cream or sugar? Neither, Lucy said, preferring sweet and fresh milk to cream. She accepted the cup and sipped. The coffee was weak and tasteless. She set it down on the edge of Campbell's metal desk. He settled back in a chrome tilt-back office chair on rollers. He crossed his right ankle on his left knee and settled his arms on the leather armrest. Have you accepted Christ as your Savior, Ms. McMeal? How arrogant. I won't be one of your converts, Lucy said. He smiled. Howard warned me about you, but he said I was to talk to you openly about anything you ask. So what do you want to know? Did he have sex with a child? I expected you to be professional. How would I know? You won't say, you mean. I wouldn't comment on a rumor, counselor. It's a key question, Mr. Campbell. You should comment. Your boss may well be indicted for statutory rape, at least molestation. I'm not sure he can be salvaged. 
Without your and other friends' full cooperation, I'm sure he'll sink faster than the Titanic. Campbell's smile had become fixed now, his cap porcelain white teeth showing. Do you think the Reverend Bain is guilty? Lucy asked. Of course not, Campbell said. Why are you so sure? Howard Bain is a man of God, leader of the church, but is he guilty of what he's been accused? Campbell's smile was gone now. I resent your tone, Counselor. My tone is the tone of the courtroom defense. You need to get used to it. I must be frank. It's an enigma to me why Howard Bain hired you. You want a man for the defense, I presume, she said. Not at all, he said. But she knew he didn't like women in the professions. She could feel it. He hired me because I have an excellent reputation as a defense lawyer, Lucy said. Howard Bain needs quality representation. He's innocent. I believe God's will will prevail. God's will may be directed through me. Had you thought of that? Campbell's insincere smile returned. Do you know the accuser? Lucy asked. Everyone knows her. The jury won't know her if this goes to trial, and I'll be the one to tell them about her, so I need to know what you think. She's a misguided young woman. By law, she's a child. But misguided? Really? In what way? About Howard. It's fantasy. What about the Reverend is fantasy for her? Campbell uncrossed his legs and leaned forward. I mean, any encounters were imagined. How can you know that? He told me. I know him well. He does not lie. It is against his core belief. Does Howard Bain fear God, Mr. Campbell? We all fear our Maker. She did not respond for many seconds. Does God love you, Mr. Campbell? He shook his head. Your hostility will never be effective, Miss McMill, he said. And your evasion will convict your boss. He glared at her for many seconds. Then he smiled again, his face transformed in an instant. I'm a fool. Of course you're right, Miss McMill. I'm sorry. He interlocked his fingers and leaned forward with his hands on the desk. Now, where were we? Does Bain fear God? I think Howard fears no one. It is the essence of his success. As a man or as a preacher? Both. Is he successful with women in his life? Lucy asked. That is not appropriate. He's being accused of penetrating a minor. How appropriate is that? The Reverend Bain has no time for feminine relations. Do you know his wife? I've seen her occasionally. And where is his wife? Here? Oh, no. She's not of the faith. They separated years ago. What about his children? Two, a boy and a girl. Does he see them often? Rarely that I know. I think it's more lack of time than lack of desire. And why did his wife leave him? That, I must point out, Campbell said, 
is a question to ask her. I'm interested in your opinion, Campbell sighed. Incompatibility. Sexual incompatibility? Don't be stupid. Who could know that? I believe it was her failure to accept Christ. She couldn't see the value of Howard's dedication to the Lord. Was it amiable? I don't believe so. You don't believe so? He frowned. It was not amiable. They haven't spoken for years. Does he support her and the children? I think so. Aren't you sure? He paused. I do not know his financial arrangements with her. But you manage his business affairs. I do not manage his personal finances. Lucy stood up and held her notebook in her hand ready for notes. Talking to you makes me agitated, she said. I don't trust you, she thought for a moment. It will not serve you well in court. I believe most people trust me implicitly, Campbell said, especially those who know me well. What about the girl? How well do you know her? I've known her for more than two years. Is she sexually active? Absolutely not. She is one of us. She serves Christ. Sex before marriage is a sin. Mortal or venial? I don't categorize sin, counselor. Do you see her every day? Of course not. But she lives here on the compound? There are very few converts I see every day. There are too many converts. And she is in school. Lucy sat back down and leaned forward. You have told me nothing of value, Mr. Campbell. Your lack of cooperation is not wise. For you or for Mr. Bain. I've been open with you, Miss McMill. I resent your accusations. I haven't really accused you yet, Mr. Campbell. But the day will come, and I suggest you decide to support your boss's defense openly and with enthusiasm. He stood. I assure you, I will do everything to protect Howard Bain. Stonewalling is not a good start. He held out his hand that she reluctantly took. It's been a pleasure meeting you, he said, but his tone said he didn't look forward to talking to her again. That evening, Lucy arranged to attend the weekly televised meeting of the Apostolic Church of Christ that had made Howard Bain famous. She must buy a ticket, she was told, although seating was open. Members of the church were, of course, allowed in for free, when she asked why the charge, she was informed there are anti-Christians eager to disrupt church services and ticket purchases help screen the audience. Lucy laughed. And it makes money, she observed. There was no reply. She bought a ticket. She chose a seat in the tiered balcony that wrapped around almost three-quarters of the auditorium. Portable wooden folding chairs were positioned on the cement flooring on each tier, Similar chairs were lined up in four major sections on the main floor, separated by aisles ten feet wide. All chairs faced a raised platform with stairs in the center and each side. Two platform left loomed an oak pipe organ with a curved mirror so the organist could see the stage and the audience. 
And to the side, off the platform, nine musicians sat mixed in among speakers, instrument cases, and tangles of wiring. Six red upholstered armchairs for dignitaries were lined up in the front of metal bleachers where a 50-member choir stood wearing red robes with white collars and gold trim on the sleeves and the hems. The director of music, a woman, was to stage right dressed in a black robe. Technicians, manning three permanent TV cameras positioned in the balcony and two mounted cameras placed on each side of the stage, made their checks. There were at least three men with shoulder-mounted cameras being readied to one side. The glass-enclosed production booth between two of the exits at the back of the auditorium glowed with a fluorescent hue. Overhead, metal braces crisscrossed the ceiling, supporting rows of floodlights that flickered as they were tested. Well before airtime, a heavy-set black woman in stage makeup and wearing an off-white shoulder sequined gown spoke to the crowd with a handheld cordless mic. Hello out there, brothers and sisters. I am Sister Marguerite McCall. Welcome and thank you for coming to this glorious evening we have arranged for you. She urged people to sit. And now I want to introduce you to your host for the evening, the Reverend Maynard M. Jackson. A tall, heavy black man in a tight-fitting tuxedo trotted awkwardly onto the stage, raising his mic to his mouth. God bless, may God bless each and every one of you. His voice was commanding and people were hurrying to sit down. The woman outlined the basic protocols for the audience and introduced a teleprompter who would aid in directing crowd responses. The reverend then announced the hymns that would be sung during the program. Attendants passed out printed sheets with the words. Three times he had the audience stand to sing, as they would during the show. He led the choir and the audience slowly joined in. Within minutes, the audience was spellbound as the sister and the reverend continued to involve them. At the corner of the stage, a thin young man in jeans and a T-shirt held up cards marking the time remaining before showtime. The on-air portion of the show picked up without pause from the warm-up session. Hymns were sung and both Sister and the Reverend read from the Gospel. Little Margot, an 11-year-old boy dressed in a tailored white suit, dark blue shirt and a white tie, and an American flag pin the size of a credit card on his lapel, delivered the first sermon. He was thin with a high prepubescent voice. His long curled hair was tied into a ponytail. His teeth were whitened and flashed in the lights when he smiled. He urged the crowd to accept Jesus. He told parables, quoted scripture, told personal anecdotes of his conversions to the kingdom of God. He jumped, he knelt, he waved his arms, and he paced back and forth across the stage. He led the choir in a hymn, and the audience joined in as his high voice was amplified to stand out above all others. He cried at the end with joy for the thousands who were with him tonight. The crowd cheered. The reverend picked him up, hugged him, and asked the audience for another round of applause. Little Margot left the stage running with interspersed leaps, and then he disappeared behind the curtain near the organ. Howard Bain was introduced. He walked out from behind the crowd at the side of the stage in a gray business suit, white shirt, and red tie. He mounted the stage. Lucy felt the confidence in his stride. He accepted a microphone from Sister McCall and faced the audience. He paused for absolute silence. 
a baby crying. He looked with gentle, loving compassion toward the offender and waited, smiling, as the mother quieted the child. The audience held its breath. He began. Cameras swept the worshippers' faces, staring up at him, most too engaged to be aware they were the target of the lens. Lucy did not take her eyes from her client. His voice was rich and forceful. She could not suppress the pleasure she felt in just hearing him. Well, beloved, when I woke this morning, I heard a woeful sound. I heard the screams of thousands of lost souls, terrible sounds of pain and suffering. The souls of modern men and women departed from this life in seeking the divine. But it was too late, too late too late for them ever to see the light that they chose not to follow. And I say to you, brothers and sisters, don't you be lost when the time cometh. He turned to rhythmic, often rhymed challenges to the audience to believe, to accept, to surrender. He offered taunts and questions that were answered with unified chants. He injected an interlude where he led the choir in song, his voice a beacon for the audience to follow. Near the conclusion, attendants lined up the ill and infirmed in lines on each side of the stage. With timed regularity, a sufferer was brought to him. Heal, he would yell, with his hands placed on a skull or over a wounded heart. Is it gone? Can you feel it? Receive the power of the Lord. And he blessed a cripple and threw each crutch on the floor while he supported the victim with a hand on the arm. Praise God! Walk, walk as God intended! The victim stumbled forward and the attendant caught him. The first steps, Bain called out. And with faith in the Lord, these will be the first steps of millions. Praise God! Men, women, and children paraded by. He cured a young man of his homosexuality. You must commit yourself to Christ, he said, and bear-hugged the young man. As he moved to conclusion, he called for all those who sought to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. More than a hundred made their way up the wide aisles. As he converted each one, they were led to the side to stand together as testimony to the power of the Lord. He touched the teenage boy, moaning on his knees, and the boy convulsed, jerking towards Bain. Bain grabbed him, expertly turning him over holding his head back into the side for unrestricted breathing, and an attendant wedged a cloth-wrapped tongue blade between the sufferer's teeth. As the convulsion stopped, Bain held him close, cradled his head, while continuously praying into the microphone he still held. Save this soul. Give him the strength to serve you, dear Lord. The boy was helped off by attendants and Bain regained the stage to join with dignitaries and friends and converts, arm in arm, swaying to a fast version of Just a Closer Walk with Thee, and he closed the show. Lucy sat mesmerized as the auditorium began to clear. Her quickened heart slowly returned to normal. She was surprised in how she had been drawn into the excitement. Her thoughts began to surface. The entire display was atrocious, of course a detestable scam that surely damaged more than it helped. Yet, the core power of the performance, 
the unity of so many frenzied levels of consciousness was beyond her expectation, and she resented it and admired it at the same time. She slowly made her way from the balcony, feeling no urgency to hurry her exit. She began to see Bain's personality could work for him and against him. Jury selection, if it came to that, would be crucial, and she knew now that each juror would have a different feeling about Bain that would have little to do with faith in the apostolic church of Christ, or religion for that matter, and reactions would be intensely emotional, drowning out objectivity and deliberations. She was among the last to leave the auditorium. Thirty minutes later, Lucy entered the guest house where she had been assigned a room. It was inexpensive, a single room that shared a bath with another room. These two rooms shared, with another set of paired rooms, a common area that had a sofa and overstuffed chairs, a TV, a small refrigerator under a sink with a microwave on a counter to the side. Two women were sitting on a sofa holding cans of soda. A continuous rerun of the show just completed was playing on the closed-circuit TV. Lucy took a bottle of water from the refrigerator and approached. "'May I join you?' she asked. Neither woman responded. One woman, heavy-set with a round face and dyed gray hair, wore a tight-fitting green pantsuit with a necklace of white, irregular cut-glass stones the size of large grapes. The other woman, slight and much shorter, wore a gray skirt and a dark blue blouse. Her gray hair was braided in a ponytail that went to her waist. Lucy sat down. Little Margot was doing his act and rerun on the small screen. I can't stand it, Ponytail said as she stood to turn off the TV and return to her seat. I was watching that, sister, Green said. I love little Margot. You can see it over and over, Ponytail said, all night long. Green twisted her weight awkwardly to stare at Ponytail. What's wrong with you? It's grotesque. It's simply a crime to rob that child of his youth. He's preaching the gospel, and he's good, too. Ain't none like him, Green said. Ponytail clamped her jaw shut, her jaw muscles bulging firm and definite at the sides of her face. I take you're not a convert, Lucy said to Ponytail. It's a form of child abuse, Ponytail said. Green took a deep breath. He loved doing it, or he wouldn't be so good at it. Ponytail put her arms on her knees and put her head in her hands. Why'd you come anyway, Green said. No need making yourself upset over nothing. It's not nothing, Ponytail said. Well, it ain't Christian to be beatifying against something you don't know nothing about at all. I don't want to talk about it anymore, Ponytail said. Green leaned back on the sofa and closed her eyes. Lucy relaxed and Ponytail didn't move. After a couple minutes, Green leaned forward and touched Ponytail briefly on the back. You know, I'm sorry about what I said, honey. It weren't Christian of me. The real good is you're coming to praise God. Ponytail sat up. She spoke softly. Her anger dissipated. I came to see my daughter. She sings in the choir. Praise God, Green said. She took Christ. 
she and her father. And why not you, sister? Ponytail sighed and paused. I'm divorced. He has custody. I'm not allowed to see my daughter. And I'm Jewish. He has a restraining order on you, Lucy asked, surprised at the possibility. For the time being. Oh, I'm so sorry for you, Green said, distressed. And that's your only one? Ponytail nodded. Oh, that's so sad. They sat, each lost in her thoughts, as Lucy studied their faces trying to detect their emotions. Finally, she said to Ponytail, Do you know the Reverend Bain? Ain't he wonderful, Green answered. He was real good to my Cindy, Ponytail said to Lucy, deliberately ignoring Green. How so, Lucy said. He gave her purpose, talked to her many times. I was there sometimes, with my husband, too. Why do you like him, Lucy asked Green. Green laughed, because he's so good-looking. It's not just that, Ponytail said. I think he really cares. Your daughter, was she always comfortable with the sessions? Lucy asked. She was afraid at first, Ponytail said. Of what? Bearing her soul, I think. But over time she opened up, and he was able to guide her. Ain't that wonderful, Green said. It was extraordinary, Ponytail said. But you don't like him using little Margot? Lucy asked. I don't think he's involved making those decisions, Ponytail said. It would be out of character. Besides, that boy is older than most of our adult children. He's small for his age. Of course the Reverend chose him, Green said. That boy preached the Word of God better than most real preachers. He probably did approve, Ponytail conceded, just not recruited. Lucy excused herself and prepared for bed. She turned out the overhead light. The bed was a thin mattress on coiled springs. The sheets were old but clean. She lay on her back and stared at the ceiling. Through the closed plywood door, she could hear the two women arguing. Chapter 7 Luke Luke and Lucy rode in an elevator alone in the Peachtree North Building on their way to sign purchase papers for their new penthouse. Lucy turned to Luke before the door opened and said softly, almost apologetically, Luke, I'm pregnant. He had not even suspected. They were married for months, but he had not even seen her for days at a time. She had been swamped with a Bain defense and three other pending cases, often sleeping in her office on a pull-out sofa. Luke was on call at the hospital, too, and when they were home together, it was always at night, usually late, and one of them was asleep when the other arrived. The door started to close. That's wonderful. When did you find out, he said. She waved a hand between the doors. Last week. The doors opened. Why didn't you tell me, he asked. They stepped out. She said nothing. You don't sound happy about it, he said as they walked toward the lawyer's conference room. I don't want to talk about it now. I just thought you should know. He felt anger rise, as it did often now when they were together and talked about almost any subject. You don't want to talk about our child? She paused in front of the lawyer's door. 
Don't treat me like a slave, Luke. I'm not alive to meet your every expectation. It's our baby, Luce. It's a new life. Why wouldn't I want to talk about it? He held her arm as she reached for the doorknob. Don't touch me, she said. How do you feel? I feel just fine, Luke. I feel just fine. Now drop it. She opened the door and went in, waving to the receptionist as she headed for the conference room. After introductions to the seller and legal staff, they signed what was needed. Lucy frowned with excess concentration. Luke barely listened to the lawyer's explanations and disclosures. In the elevator on the way down, they stood side by side looking at the closed steel doors. I, I don't understand, Luce, Luke said. What is it you don't understand, she said, looking at him. We ought to be celebrating. The doors opened. They walked into the noisy lobby crowded with patrons. I don't want a child, Lucy said loudly. A woman passing looked at her briefly. I don't have time for children. Then she almost whispered, I'm going to get rid of it. No, Luke said reflexively. He grabbed her arm, forcing her to stop. I will not allow it. She twisted in his grip. Let go of me. He released her. It is not your decision, she said. It's my child, too, he said. She made a hissing sound. We need to talk, he said. Not now. When? Later. Tonight, he asked. I don't know if I'll be home tonight. This is important to me, Luce. I won't have you aborting my child. It's my child, Luke. I have a say. I'll make the decision. Call me tomorrow, she said. She walked out the door. He tried to follow, but she turned. Don't, Luke. I'm not in the mood. Luke called and drove directly to Lucy's mother's house. A.J. wasn't home, but Elizabeth, who still lived with her parents, joined her mother, Agnes, and Luke around the table for four that was in the patio off the kitchen. Agnes had prepared coffee, which she and Luke drank, and Elizabeth had Diet Coke. I can't believe it, Agnes said about the pregnancy. We've dreamed about it, but to have it happen. When will it come, Elizabeth asked. I don't know, Luke said. She told me this morning on the way to the signing. Surely she must have some idea, Elizabeth said. Babies take nine months. It's routine. She wasn't herself, he said. Agnes spoke after a long pause. We haven't seen her in so long. Only once since you've been married. I've called her to go out twice, Elizabeth said, but she doesn't have time. She doesn't want the baby. She wants to get rid of it, Luke said. Agnes closed her eyes. She can't do that, Elizabeth said. That's taking an innocent life. She was squeezing interlocked fingers until her skin blanched. Luke leaned forward and touched Agnes's hand. Is there something you could do? Talk to her. Agnes lowered her head. She doesn't listen to us anymore. She won't let us be her parents. She looked at Luke accusingly. You married without us even knowing. Luke searched for the right words. She was afraid you would want a big wedding. She didn't want that. Elizabeth returned. She's really considerate about anything when it comes to family, she said. It's been difficult for her, Agnes said to Elizabeth. Then she turned to Luke. 
She's always arguing with A.J. And you've given her everything, Elizabeth said to Agnes. She won't listen. She doesn't feel a part of the family, Luke said. Agnes sighed. After all we've done? She's never been appreciative, Elizabeth added. It's more complicated than that, Luke said. And I know she respects all of you. Agnes frowned in disagreement. She doesn't even tolerate us anymore. Isn't there something you could say to her, Luke said, about the baby? She wouldn't listen, Agnes said. I can't let her do this, he said. Elizabeth shifted in her chair. Her clear blue eyes looked out the picture window. She yearned for children of her own. She would never understand destroying a child. You need to call her, Elizabeth said to her mother. I wouldn't know what to say, Agnes said. Agnes seemed confused. She would always want grandchildren. But raising Lucy had exhausted her. She had no rage about anything anymore. And it was rage she desperately needed, or something intense, to relieve the helplessness she now felt. What about A.J.? Luke asked. Agnes responded quickly, as if offended by the idea. He would make it worse. She would go against anything he says. But you'll tell him, Luke said. Of course I'll tell him, Agnes said with irritation. And he'll try to call her, but she won't talk to him, trust me. Lucy thinks A.J. doesn't respect her, Luke said. How could she think that, Agnes said. If A.J. could just listen with a little compassion, Luke said. He's rarely been a comfort for any of us, Elizabeth said. I'm afraid that's all we can do, Agnes said. It's not enough, Luke said, angry with their conceits. The next day, A.J. did call, and Lucy talked to him. He asked her to consider the importance of taking the life of their grandchild. Lucy said she and her child were not of their blood. She was adopted. A.J. said that his years of caring about her, loving her, did make a blood relationship. Lucy turned silent, suspicious of his words. How did most women crave the pleasures of children? Such cravings had never reached her. My God, she had too much to do, too much to achieve. Will you think about it, A.J. asked. She hung up, disturbed at the revelations of affection that she had never expected. Chapter 8 Elizabeth Elizabeth McMeal fretted to herself the night her father said he talked to Lucy about the pregnancy, but that Lucy gave no clues to what she might or might not do. The delicate light from the moonlit sky filtered in through the two-bedroom windows that looked out over the lawn of her parents' house. She stared in a state of sleepless agitation at the dark, shadowed, frosted-like globe on the ceiling, intent on the shadow speck of a dead fly gravitated on the inside to the bottom. Lucy was adopted, but she was family. This fetus was a part of the family, and to act as if it were only her decision is exactly what Elizabeth had grown to dislike about Lucy over the years. Lucy was, in almost everything she did, self-centered and inconsiderate. Besides, it was a moral issue. This wasn't rape or incest. 
This child was conceived in marriage, and Elizabeth had no tolerance for abortion of convenience. She loved children. She'd chosen to develop the formative years of third and fourth graders. It had never been a job for her. She didn't need money to live. Outside the classroom, she had decided to reach out to all children, privileged or not, through stories. She wrote fresh and unique tales with morals and lessons for life and made them interesting. After failing to find illustrators who could visually create what she wanted to support her work, she learned to paint. Her illustrations were never frightening, always realistic. She deplored the illustrations drawn with gaudy images and cute creatures to sell books mainly to parents. Her five books had sold well, under a pseudonym, and she had just won an international award for her first. It was past midnight. She could not just let the possibility of aborting float along like a dandelion seed in the wind. She would talk to Lucy, convince her. It would not be easy, but she would never forgive herself if she didn't at least try. The next day was Saturday. Elizabeth went to the gym where she knew Lucy would be working out. Lucy could not avoid her there, as she would if she tried to make an appointment. She found Lucy on a treadmill and convinced her to leave the exercise room. The women's locker room had people, but the basketball court was empty except for a lone player shooting baskets at one end. Elizabeth suggested they sit on the first row of wooden bleachers. Uh, what's up? Lucy asked. She was breathing hard and light perspiration glistened on her skin. Elizabeth noted her beauty with a touch of envy, as she always had. It's about the baby, Elizabeth said. Off limits, Elizabeth. I mean it. It's about family. Lucy tensed and stared at her. It's important to mother especially, Elizabeth continued. It's her first grandchild. Find a man, Elizabeth. Have your family. You give them grandchildren. Elizabeth stared at the turnaround jump shot the player had just released. Watched the arc but the ball was six inches short of the rim. She looked at Lucy. That's not a solution, she said. You'll never find a man sitting on your ass at home. Get out. Enjoy yourself, Lucy said. The player repeated the same shot but missed again. Must you personalize your irritation, Elizabeth asked. Pray tell, what does that mean, Elizabeth? Personalize my irritation. My failure to find a man is not the reason you should let this baby come to term. If you don't want a child, let others care for it. This is the age of a career woman with a surrogate mother. I don't know what I'll do, Lucy said. Luke must be devastated, Elizabeth said. Believe me, Luke orbits in his own spaceship. The player was trying foul shots. He hadn't made one yet. Just please consider all of us. Lucy looked to the wall clock behind her. This is my baby, my problem, my future, she said. Just consider us, Elizabeth said. I've never really been a McMeal, but I'll consider your concerns, Lucy said. She paused. My heart is not in it, Elizabeth, and when I decide, it will be for my own reasons not because you came here today or because Mother wants to send pictures of her grandchild at Christmas. 
Elizabeth had made no progress with Lucy. But she had tried. She worried for Luke. Lucy seemed unaware of the value of Luke's love for her. God, how she disliked Lucy at times. Chapter 9. Luke Months later, after Elizabeth talked to Lucy, Lucy delivered a baby girl. Luke waited with Agnes and Elizabeth in the family room, and all cheered at the news. Lucy seemed proud and pleased. She named her daughter Jennifer after her mother in Puerto Rico. Lucy spent one night in the hospital. Her blood pressure had been high from preeclampsia, and she had been heavily sedated. Jennifer was less than three pounds and spent three weeks in a neonatal intensive care unit. At home, Lucy's exhaustion never allowed restful sleep. Luke helped as best he could. Her body ached and she hated lying still, but couldn't muster the energy to move. She was either hot or cold, and always aware of her discomfort. Luke tried to keep family away. Lucy told her mother she wanted to be alone, but then Lucy was irritated after her mother left by her mother's lack of attention. Lucy slept in a separate bedroom, and although she went to see Jennifer every day at the hospital, she did not leave the condo for anything else. Agnes, and sometimes Elizabeth, brought her food and ran errands. As the time came to bring Jennifer home, Agnes suggested Jennifer and Lucy come live with them for a while. Plenty of room... Luke said no without asking Lucy. Lucy would never agree. So Agnes spent weeks carefully investigating a live-in nanny to take care of Jennifer, a Mrs. Crowder, widowed in 62, a high school education but with experience of five of her own children. She would stay in one of the guest bedrooms next to where Jennifer would be, able to keep a constant watch. Luke had filled his block time at the hospital early in the month and needed to operate routine cases as emergencies any time he could get priority on the surgical schedule. His times to see Lucy became infrequent. When Mrs. Crowder arrived, Lucy felt better. She slept regularly and well. But Mrs. Crowder was a constant presence that invaded Lucy's world, and Lucy couldn't wait to escape. She was soon back at work, her days interrupted only by regular workout sessions to regain her body tone and lose the few pounds she had gained during the pregnancy. Chapter 10 Lucy Howard Bain was indicted. Lucy and the firm filed a number of unsuccessful motions. The DA was determined to convict he didn't like Howard Bain any more than he liked Lucy McMeal, and he saw political advantage in prosecuting a well-known celebrity. Is he guilty? Alan McCormick, her senior partner, asked Lucy. She gave him an impatient glance. What difference does it make? They were standing by the coffee pot in the empty employee's lounge. It makes a difference in how you'll frame the trial, but it will also change your effectiveness. It's hard to be enthusiastic when you know he's guilty. It's complex, Alan. Most of his followers believe he cannot be guilty. The girl is 15, but she looks 20. I don't think there's a man alive that would even come close to thinking about her age, much less guessing it correctly. So if it happened, 
It might have been accidental. Any updates from investigators? They've confirmed she wasn't a virgin. One guy might be willing to testify if he had immunity. He's only 17. You'd need that. You'll never get that girl to admit that on the stand. I hate that the press has tried this case. From what I've heard, they think Bain's guilty. With the exception of a rare right-wing conservative paper, Lucy said. Do you like him any better? McCormick asked. Lucy shifted her weight from left foot to right as she answered. I never disliked him. McCormick laughed. The few times I've seen you together, you were at each other's throats. Sometimes she liked Howard Bain better than she liked Alan McCormick. She didn't like McCormick talking down to her, and she didn't like his always-present, barely-disguised sexism. To him, she had always been a token addition to the firm. No woman would ever be a partner, and he dismissed her intellect as inconsequential. Lucy told Howard Bain to never give an interview to the press. She insisted. Hours later, he allowed a five-minute interview with a local TV reporter while he was standing in front of the courthouse. He denied all. He took the stance of a victim. He was arrogant and unlikable, and he hurt his image. Lucy called him immediately. Don't ever do that again, she said. You're not my mother, Bain said. You've compromised your defense. Even the judge warned you not to use the media. I told the truth, Bain said. You explained you were unlikable, not to my followers. To those who might make up the jury, I guarantee you there will be few, if any, followers on that jury. I will defend myself at every opportunity, Bain said. Not publicly and not on TV. That's not how it's going to be, Counselor. I'll do what I think is right. Then you'll find yourself another lawyer. With pleasure. Lucy hung up. Two hours later, Jason Campbell, Bain's lieutenant, called. Howard, sorry, Miss McNeil. He did not speak appropriately. True, and I'm happy to be off his case. He wants you back. Way too many risks for my career, Mr. Campbell. I don't think he'll do well with this, no matter what he thinks about God's will is doing for him. She hung up without saying goodbye. She cleaned the desk of Bain's case files and took the day off. Later that evening, Alan McCormick called from the firm. You can't quit, he said. I can and I will. We need this case, Lucy, and you're the best to handle it. You or anyone else can handle it, Lucy said. You are the only chance for a win. It's high profile, Lucy. He's a loser. You've already started to paint him as a saint. His popularity will make that credible. A man of God, and you've nailed the girl for what she is. She's a child, Ellen. But she's a sexually active child long before the alleged incident. Her life is screwed up enough as it is, Lucy said. You'll just be pointing out reality. That she's unreliable. We can't trust what she says about anything. And there are no witnesses. Are there? Of course not. Can you be sure? Not totally. But we'll never get full disclosure. Would you if you were the DA? McCormick didn't answer. I don't like Bain, Lucy said. How many defendants have you liked? 
He's a misogynist and arrogant. Never allow him to testify. I don't even want him on TV. He's promised to obey Lucy. He'll never obey, me or anyone. I've got to insist, McCormick said. We need this case. We need to win. Lucy remained silent. She didn't like being pressed by senior partners. It reminded her of her junior status as a woman lawyer. Can I call him? McCormick asked. She paused. I'm not happy. McCormick laughed. You're the best, Lucy, he said. Chapter 11 Luke Mrs. Crowder had the weekend off to be with her sister in Valdosta. Luke came in from the garage, back from Saturday morning rounds. Lucy sat on a stool and fed strained peaches to Jennifer with a solid sterling silver spoon Agnes had given her. Jennifer pushed it out of her mouth with her tongue, and it ran down her chin and plopped on the messy high-chair tray. Lucy swore under her breath and wiped Jennifer's mouth with a paper towel. Late breakfast? Luke asked. She didn't answer. She was trying to force another spoonful down Jennifer, who started to cry. Luke put his briefcase on the central island. How's it going? Don't ask. That bad? She won't eat. Maybe she's not hungry. She's ornery. I wonder where she got that from, Luke said, laughing. Lucy threw a wad of paper towels onto the floor and stood up. I don't have to take that crap. I meant me, he said. Not you. And he moved by the high chair to take Lucy in his arms. But she shoved him away. I'm not good at this, Luke. I need someone to help when Mrs. Crowder isn't here. He reached under the sink for a rag that he wet under the faucet. Clean her up and put her in the crib, Luke said. I'll clean up here and put on a pot of coffee. Lucy lifted Jennifer from the chair and holding her stiff-armed so her legs dangled, took her into the bathroom to clean her up. Luke wiped down the high chair, cleaned the counter and the floor, and brewed coffee. He called to Lucy to meet him in the living room when coffee was ready, and she was there in seconds, taking the overstuffed chair opposite to where he was sitting. How were rounds? she asked. So-so. They presented another case I don't think should have been operated. It's worse, isn't it? the quest for gold. It may be me behind the times. This case had a cataract removed with vision in both eyes better than your mother, who leads a useful and contented life, at least as far as her vision is concerned. Are there quotas? Lucy asked. Not openly, but there are bonuses paid on volume of surgery and office visits. Conflict of interest, Lucy said. And this case had a blinding complication in an eye with relatively good vision to start. I don't feel good about it. What does A.G. think? Lucy asked. He doesn't think about it that I know. The other docs? Most are upset. How can this happen at an academic level? It's changed a lot, Luce. Especially for the anterior segment cataract surgeons. When A.J. presents the monthly financial report at faculty meetings, income is far more important than science for him. He's proud that gross billings are in the millions. Even in the clinical research report, it's not the search for knowledge, but for something we can patent. 
And, of course, you can't talk to him about it. He gets angry. She nodded. Tell me about it. Jennifer cried. Luke started to stand, but Lucy was already on her feet. I'll check, she said. She was back in minutes. She's fine. Luke had refreshed her coffee cup. She settled back down. You are a good mother, Luce. You shouldn't be thinking anything else. I'm not, Luke. I get angry. I resent what I have to do. You love to be around her. Lucy paused. Not always. Sometimes I don't want her around. Luke smiled gently. We all feel like that occasionally. I'm not sure. And it's not what normal mothers feel. I can't imagine Elizabeth ever wanting to be away from a child. She would be a perfect mother, always making the right decisions, always feeling love and pride. I don't have it, and I don't know how to get it. You made the right decision about bringing Jennifer into the world. I, I, I don't know. She's a happy child, Luce, full of potential. She's not happy. She's being brought up by a stranger. When I spend time with her, it's all scolding and correcting. That's not happiness. That's necessity. That's parenting. And she's growing and learning. She smiles and laughs. Not often with me. All the time with you. Lucy closed her eyes and remained silent. I'll be sure to have someone here to help when Mrs. Crowder's away, Luke said. With the Bain trial coming up, I'll have less time at home. But when you can be here, I'll get it arranged. Lucy took her cup to the kitchen and Luke stayed in his chair, his arms on the armrest, his head back, his eyes closed for more than ten minutes. Chapter 12. Lucy. Howard Bain began to ignore Lucy, diverting all her calls to staff who couldn't answer the questions the investigators uncovered or the press evoked that she needed to answer. And he refused to come to Atlanta for conferences. She sent legal assistance for a while. The drive to the church compound was four and a half hours one way. But as the defense developed, she had more need to question him. She and Alan McCormick had deposed the accuser. The girl was a natural. She had the ability to look and sound vulnerable and victimized. She seemed unable to deviate from the truth. Almost nothing seemed contrived. She said she had gone to many one-on-one -on -one conferences with Reverend Bain. Most had been with her mother, but a few other times, when her mother was at work as a waitress, her mother's boyfriend had dropped her off. She said Howie was helping her find Christ as her Savior, that she had sinned. She'd made love to boys, and Howie had helped her to find redemption and the strength to be good again. With Howie's help, she believed God had forgiven her. Lucy had carefully prepared her questions about the rape. The girl said she was talking about her mother to Howie, telling him how her mother thought so low of her, and when it happened, she was not so upset. It was like slow motion, how he had put his hand on her knee. She was sitting on a sofa in his office conference room. He was sitting in an armchair that he had pulled up beside her. She didn't stop talking. He asked her more questions about her mother, 
She was sure about this. He moved his hand under her dress. She felt his caress. Movement, she actually said. She stopped talking and looked at him. He was looking at me and his eyes did not move. His hand slipped up my leg near my privates. I had panties on. I'm sure I did. No, sometimes when I was in a hurry I might not wear panties. Well, he touched me. Yes, I did say something. Don't, I said. He took his hand away and got up out of the chair and kneeled beside me. He told me how beautiful I was. Like an angel, he said. I think I giggled. I was so nervous. But he touched my lips with his finger. Then he kissed me all over. Never on the lips, really, just all over. He took my hand and put it on his pants so I could feel him. It was warm even through the cloth. And then, then he took me. No, I was too afraid. I didn't know what might happen if I yelled. No, I, I don't think he would have beat me or anything. It hurt me down there at first, but I didn't scream. He took them off. He pulled them down over my legs. Yes, my dress was still on, wadded up around my waist. I don't remember where the panties went. Alan McCormick took over the questioning. He said he loved me. He would always love me. He walked me through the office where the secretary said. He always did that after a session. Yes, I told my mother right away when I got home. She said I had been violated, and she called a friend who gave her the name of a lawyer. Well, the police came. I didn't have the panties. I don't know where they were. I must have left them in the office. I was too afraid to think about it when I left. Lucy and Alan McCormick sat in the room used for depositions after the accuser and the DA and his staff had left and the court recorder and the video man had packed up and they were alone. It never happened, Lucy said, in his office, with the staff outside the door. McCormick nodded. Doesn't seem likely. It's her fantasy. She may believe that fantasy happened. It gives her a lot of credibility in the presentation. I think I can easily find discrepancies the next time she tells it, Lucy said. Maybe, McCormick said. You think she's that smart? I think she's imaginative and clever, and more misguided by her wants than evil. I think she'll be consistent and a great witness. They'll put her on the stand if they can. McCormick stood. I'd get to Bane, Lucy. See how he reacts to the story. And I'd interview the secretaries and the staff. See what they remember. I'm doing that, Lucy said curtly. I know you are. We'd better arrange to subpoena the mother for a deposition. I'd like to know her story, too, McCormick said. Lucy had already started the arrangements and resented McCormick's paternalistic tone. And I'd get the police report, he said. Don't treat me like an assistant. The report is incomplete and of little help to either side. McCormick was acting like the lead on this case. She began to believe the only reason he didn't take it himself was that he knew it wasn't winnable. McCormick shrugged before he pushed back the chair to leave the room. Lucy went directly to make arrangements to again visit the compound of the Apostolic Church of Christ.
Chapter 13 Luke Luke worked in his office late on Thursday. A fellow faculty member and director of fellowship training, Eileen Turner, a five-foot-six woman with a masculine physique kept in peak condition, short dark hair, and prominent facial features dominated by clear blue eyes, opened the door to his office and directed in Sandra Perez, one of the fellows, without asking Luke's permission, which was Eileen's way. Luke said nothing about her rudeness because of their long-standing friendship. Eileen pointed for Sandra to sit down in a straight-backed chair and remain standing in front of Luke, glaring. "'What's the crisis?' he asked. "'Sandra's got bad news.' Sandra sat rigid, her face a tense mask. "'You know I don't have anything to do with the fellows,' Luke said to Eileen. "'This is not about fellows. Get to the point, Eileen.' Sandra got an official notice from Human Resources. She's been dismissed from the program.' Sandra looked away. She seemed about to cry. Luke came from behind the desk and pulled up a chair. He motioned for Eileen to sit. What happened? Yes, Sandra. I, 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 I don't know, she said. I called human services, Eileen said. It came without warning and without reason. They said their action was protected by confidentiality and they had told her everything that was required for dismissal of a fellow which is a different status than the staff. Well, they told her nothing. That's unfair, he said. We didn't come for the obvious, Eileen said. Of course it's unfair. You must have some idea, he said to Sandra. I, I really don't, Dr. Osborne. I've always done my best. I, I, I've never made major errors. Pa patients seem to like me. Her faculty evaluations are almost perfect, Eileen said. Luke stared at Eileen, waiting for the exception. Eileen frowned. Except for Modesto Sanchez's last one a few weeks ago. Everything poor. For the last two years he's been here, he's always given her excellent ratings. What's the point, Luke said. There's no reason for it. Sandra is an excellent doc. She's worked hard placed in the 90th percentile on her OCAP exams. Eileen took a deep breath. And she's a single parent with two young children. What do you want me to do, Luke asked Eileen. Make it right. She should be allowed to finish and recommended for whatever she wants to do. I'm not the chair. Then go to A.J. He can make a difference. You'd do it better, Luke said. I was told to make an appointment. The next appointment is a month. Grab him in the hall. He won't listen. You're chief of service and respected. Help us out. Delays will keep her from finishing on time, even if she is reinstated. Luke was moved by Sandra's distress and the unfairness of what they described. It was a reasonable request. Okay, Luke said. I'll see what I can do. Luke went to confront Modesto Sanchez in the doctor's dressing room on the surgery floor. Modesto was waiting for a patient to be placed in an OR room. Luke, my man, he said, I got a case. Modesto was a small man, dark in complexion with guarded dark eyes. He was hyperactive, and Luke felt uncomfortable around him. 
It's about Sandra Perez, Luke said. She's been dismissed from the program. Modesto's gaze didn't falter, as if he were concentrating on not looking away. Nothing to do with me, Modesto said. You are the only one who gave her a bad evaluation, and you've probably had less contact with her than most of us. Hey, Luke, I call him as I see him, man. It's part of the job. That's all? What more is there? Modesto left for the OR. Luke went to A.J.'s office within the hour. A.J. was in conference, but promised to come to Luke as soon as he was finished. Three hours later, well past 7.30, A.J. showed up. He sat in the same chair Sandra Perez had occupied. "'How's my grandchild?' A.J. said. "'Doing great. Talking up a storm,' Luke laughed. "'Nothing we can understand.' "'You're great parents,' A.J. said. "'What's on the agenda?' Sandra Perez, A.J., what's with her? Lawyer advice, Luke. Said to let her go. She's a good fellow. It seems unfair, Luke said. She's not that good, A.J. said. She's been an exemplary fellow. I wish we had more like her. She had terrible evaluations. Only one, A.J., and by Modesto, who didn't even know her well, I don't get involved with fellows, Luke. You know that. It's valuable time wasted. You could reverse the decision with a phone call. Well, I won't override staff. That's bad management, and there are circumstances that cannot be discussed. Sandra should be told why she's being dismissed. That's Eileen's problem. Ask her. She should handle it. She doesn't know. A.J. stared over Luke's head for a second. "'What's it to you?' he asked. "'It's wrong, A.J. It needs to be reversed.' A.J. shook his head. "'I'd stay out of it, Luke. She's a fellow in training who can find training somewhere else. We'll help her do that if she wants.' "'There's nothing good available this late in the year.' "'Next year, then. It isn't fair. How can you be so sure?' I helped train her, Luke said. A.J. stood. It's a bad trait, Luke, this gallantry. Sometimes it's no good to be a knight in shining armor, he said as he left. Luke called Lucy at work. He told her about Sandra's firing. Don't you have someone who specializes in labor grievances, he said to Lucy. Of course, and he's dealt with the university before. I'll call you back. An hour later, Lucy called back. The labor guy says there's a reason she was fired and she's not telling you. She must suspect something. He'll be glad to consider being involved, but he wants more details and a $10,000 retainer. I was hoping for a little free direction on how to proceed, Luke said. Find out the details. That's good advice, Luke. And that's free. I think A.J. knew about Sanders' reasons and he wouldn't say, Luke said. He refused to reinstate her when I asked. Lucy paused. A cover-up? Something serious? I doubt that. I think your lawyer friend is right. Sandra probably did something that A.J. doesn't want to reveal for her sake. But he had to discipline her. He may not be involved at all. Your department is a bureaucratic nightmare. I've got to be careful. 
Luke said, especially if I've climbed out on a limb for a fellow who should have been dismissed. That seems prudent, Lucy said. Check sexual harassment issues and gender discrimination, two of the most common reasons for female doctors' dismissals. I can't believe that, Luke said. It's damn common, Lucy said. Luke went back to Modesto Sanchez. Modesto was about to leave his office for the garage. He had on shorts and a T-shirt. He played squash three times a week. Got a tournament, he said, and started out the door. Luke grabbed his shirt sleeve to stop him. This won't take long. Modesto shrugged. It looks like there will be legal involvement in the Sandra dismissal, Luke said. No one will say what went down. That always raises suspicion of sexual harassment. Bullshit, Modesto said, but there were glints of worry in his eyes. You didn't do anything that might provoke charges, did you? She say that? No. Of course I didn't, and I don't like your asking. Why write a poor evaluation on a doc who never had a poor evaluation before and who rarely had duties on the cornea service? Modesto took a deep breath. Look, Luke, I'm no ass chaser. I got a family. I was told she was a bad fellow and to write a bad evaluation. I assumed she wasn't any good. I didn't even know about her other evaluations. Almost perfect, Luke said. Well, I made a mistake. Correct it then. I don't know that I can. I tried when asked. I said I was uncomfortable writing a bad report on a doctor I worked with only 10 or 12 times. Why did you do it? It was mentioned that I was up for promotion in two months. A threat? Indirectly, Modesto said. But clearly enough. Who was it? I can't say. I'll find out, Modesto. Probably within a few hours. It's my career, man. It's Sandra's career. You don't want to be a part of the legal battle that might come up. The suspicions. The innuendos. A.J., my friend, he told you to do it? He told me word for word what to put on those forms. Modesto turned to leave. I may ask you to tell someone else, Luke said. Not me, Luke. This is the last I'll ever speak about it. I'm not suicidal, man. You'll deny it, Luke asked? Yes, and Modesto hurried away. Luke called home and told Mrs. Crowder to not keep Jennifer up and that he'd be home late. He had Eileen Turner find Sandra Perez and bring her to his office. They sat in chairs around his desk. Look, Sandra, this is not right. I called for legal advice. They said you would have some suspicion as to why you were released, that you were very probably holding back information. The look on Eileen's face said that Sandra had not been forthright. She's afraid, Eileen said. She needs recommendations and contacts to find a position that will allow her to finish training. My God, you know how hard those are to find. It would be harder than being reinstated here, Luke agreed. Which is not likely, Eileen said. The only way to get reinstated is to have Dr. McNeil cancel the dismissal, Sandra said. I don't think anyone else can do it. That's the problem, Eileen said. It's McMeal. Luke stared at both of them. I need more, he said. Tell me. 
Eileen glanced at Sandra, who looked at Luke and took a deep breath. There's rumor that a malpractice suit is imminent, Eileen said. About what, Luke asked. I hear such rumors once a week. It has to do with Sandra not telling you, Eileen said. Sandra thought if there was not a chance of reinstatement, it was best to get out as soon as she could. Sandra raised her hand to speak. It, it was a complicated case, she said. I was operating with Dr. McMeal. I had worked up this patient of his. I knew the patient well. It was Dr. McMeal's big surgery day, Thursday. He had 13 cases, seven of them transplants. On those days, we worked two rooms. His p patients were prepared and prepped in another room while an operation was completed. It was the only way to do that many cases. Frequently, I or one of the other fellows working with Dr. McMill finished a case while he went to start the case in the next room. This day, we were working three rooms with a resident helping. Dr. McMill and I were near the end of a case. The patient, Eustace Jones, had already been rolled into another room. He was ready for a block prep and drape. Finish up, Sandra, Dr. McMill said. Yes, sir, I said. He told the resident to take care of Eustace Jones. It was an unusual request to a resident, but the resident was senior and had had experience. The resident left. Dr. McMill went to a telephone in the hall with an outside line. I could hear him. I'm sure the anesthetist could, too. The circulator was not present. He was talking to his stockbroker. The call lasted maybe eight or nine minutes. He left without coming back into where I was finishing the case. I was having some difficulty with a running suture that I needed to replace. When he went to Eustace Jones, the patient was blocked and draped with a scope in place. The resident had already inserted the speculum and prepared the eye. Dr. McMill did the tree find and sent the corneal button to pathology. The transplant tissue was prepared and already on the eye. He had started the sutures by the time I finished in the other room and had re-scrubbed. I knew the patient well, and when I sat down to the scope, I knew it was the wrong eye. I whispered it to Dr. McMeal. He stopped operating, but still held the needle holder and forceps motionless in the field under the scope. After a few seconds, he said, Eustace, to me, as if he'd remembered something about the patient. Eustace Jones, I confirmed. Bilateral Fuchs dystrophy with decompensation after bilateral cataract removal, he asked. Yes, I said but with known macular degeneration in his eye with poor visual potential? I nodded. Dr. McMeal still held the instrument under the scope, and he still peered into the oculars as I did on the assistant's side. His grip was without the slightest tremor, even under the magnification. Both eyes were to be done, he said, but that wasn't true. Only the eye with potential vision was scheduled. I decided to do this one first, he said, to see what vision could be recovered. We finished the case. Correct the chart and the anesthesia pre-op records, he said. OS to OD. Date it and initial it, he said. I don't feel comfortable doing that, I said. He glared at me. I didn't hear that, he said. I hesitated and knew this was wrong for the patient. To go through two operations for a mistake? No, I said. I won't do it. He swore but didn't argue. He changed the records. 
He instructed me to start the next case while he went down to the family. I heard later that he told the family he had, in the patient's best interest, decided to operate on the right eye to recover as much vision as possible before doing the left eye. That he was concerned with the pressure fluctuations on the good eye and the effect it might have on surgery. There were pressure changes, of course, but nothing that an iridotomy and medications couldn't have controlled. The family trusted him. He was a famous, experienced surgeon. And smooth-talking, said Arlene. And nothing happened, Luke asked. Two weeks later, he operated the other eye. I was not allowed on the case. He did it with Andrew. That seems short between eyes for transplants, Luke said. Even cataracts, said Eileen. We are, we are taught the established time between transplants is six months minimum, Sandra continued. But Dr. McMill convinced the family it was best. I was there when he told them he was aiming to have one eye for near vision and the other for far. That was impossible, said Eileen. He made it even seem more likely that he wanted to get Eustace rehabilitated as soon as possible, especially at his age, Sandra said. But both eyes rejected the grass. I was no longer allowed to see the patients. But the first eye, without good vision potential, was quieted with the usual treatments. The better eye failed completely. Dr. McMill regrafted while the eye was still inflamed. The patient had no functional vision and required full-time assistance. He could no longer watch TV, his football games mainly, or read even with a magnifying glass. He had difficulty learning to feed himself. The family took him out of Dr. McMill's care. A few weeks later, the patient died from a heart attack. He'd had heart disease from hypertension. A poor operative risk, Eileen asked. In, in my opinion, Sandra said. Oh, all this happened over a few months. I heard a suit was filed uh, last week. And A.J. wanted you out of the city, Arlene said. I was really the only one who saw the scenario and was close to him. Anastasia won't have a tight memory of what happened or know the details. The resident is in Haiti on a surgical rotation. Rumor has it he will not return before he graduates. He has a fellowship in um, L.A. Don't you see, Arlene said to Luke. They're already making discovery impossible. I I'm the only one who really knows there was an error, Sanders said. McMeal will insist his plan was in place. The resident knew, but I think he was thankful that Dr. McMeal could handle the whole thing so efficiently. Although unethically, Eileen said. I tried to find the chart. It disappeared from medical records. I, I have a copy of my original care of the patient, Sandra said. I'd put it in a vault, Luke said. I'll help with that, Eileen said. She needs legal help. The one lawyer my wife approached wants a $10,000 retainer. I, I don't have it, Sandra said. Maybe there's some way we can use part of the residence fund, Eileen said. Luke hesitated. The resident's fund was for education, not legal fees. Besides, although he believed all of what Sandra said, he wasn't sure if the perceptions about A.J.'s actions might be tainted a little by emotions at the time. Medical ethics was never clear-cut. Certainly, A.J. had a different, 
if not reasonable, explanation for his actions in the O.R. He's my father-in-law, Luke said to Eileen. There's not much more I can do. What can we do then, Eileen asked him. Go to the dean? I don't know, Eileen, Luke said, exasperated. Talk to A.J. now that you know the truth. One version of what happened, Luke said. It, it, it is the truth, Sandra said. Don't spin things, Luke. It's not right, Eileen said loudly. That hurt Luke. If he believed Sandra, he should help her until he had reason not to believe, father-in-law or not. I'll see what I can do, Luke said. Chapter 14. Lucy. Lucy continued to resent traveling to the compound to talk to Bain. She didn't think Bain would demand that of McCormick, a male lawyer with stature. It was sexism, she was convinced, and it irritated her. And Bain treated her as an inferior. She'd often thought Bain had hired her because he could control her more easily than he could a man. She was sure of that now. The paradox was she needed information to succeed, and to get valuable information she had to pretend, at least for the time being, she was a lawyer that she was not, a lawyer willing to bend to the will of her client and not take control of the legal process. And she hadn't wanted to ask McCormick to step in and make Bain act like a respectful client. It would be her own defeat. So she was traveling again to see Bain to talk about the deposition. This would be the last time. She would make that clear. She arrived a day before her meeting with Bain. She started as soon as she had been assigned a room in the guest quarters to talk to as many people as she could, not just to discover Bain, but to also see the thinking of those in the compound. Near the gymnasium was a Quonset hut. A placard on an easel anchored with stones at the feet and taped above for stability said, Evolution and Creationism. Why compromise? Twenty or so people sat in folding chairs facing a young man with a cleric's collar who sat on a rectangular table, his feet dangling, his hands gripping the edges of the table at his sides and leaning forward in a casual pose. He stopped talking when Lucy entered. Welcome, he said. Take a seat. He pointed to a chair in the front row. She felt his eyes on her as she walked to the front. She sat, crossing her legs, her hands in her lap. The lawyer, isn't it, he said. Lucy nodded, not sure whether she wanted to be here now, but deciding it was not in her best interest to leave. We're here to discuss evolution, Darwinism, he said. He pronounced it Darwin for a bonding effect with his audience, Lucy was sure. What do you believe? he asked, looking at Lucy. Are we from monkeys? Is that our folks? Lucy remained silent. An older man behind her spoke. That's not a fair question, Reverend. Quite the contrary, the Reverend said. We know why the lawyer's here. If she expects us to be open with her, she should be open with us. Her beliefs are important, and I frankly have heard that she seems to think herself a little better than most of us. By strong will, Lucy didn't move a muscle. Don't you have anything to say? The Reverend asked her. Lucy stared at him, 
maintaining her control and denying him any clue as to her thoughts. She was interested that he was trying to demean her, and she wanted to find out if it was personal because of her or her profession, or whether he was acting through loyalty and respect of her client, Howard Bain. "'Cat got your tongue?' he said. A woman at the side stood. "'This is not Christian, Reverend Canby. The lawyer is a guest and should be treated with respect.' The Reverend smiled and waited before he responded. Of course you're right, Mrs. Hardwick. He looked at Lucy. My apologies. I hope you take no offense. No offense was intended, I assure you. The Reverend seemed surprised when Lucy stood after a few seconds, looked at him briefly, and turned to face the audience. She glanced over the intent faces. All eyes were on her. She saw no evidence of hostility on most of the faces. Some were unreadable. Hello, she said. I am Lucy McMeal, and as the Reverend mentioned, I am a lawyer. And if there's anyone who doesn't know, I represent Howard Bain. She turned briefly to the Reverend. And you are right, sir. My opinions as counsel to Howard Bain are important, and you have every right to be curious. Your love and respect for the Reverend Bain give you that right. Her gaze swept over the audience again. And I am interested in this question of evolution. What does each of you believe? Why is it important to you? Have you considered these issues? Frankly, it would help me form my own opinions. I would appreciate your views. We believe God created man, the Reverend said, and not for monkeys. The man who had spoken previously stood. He dressed plainly in a plaid shirt and coveralls, and his blue intelligent eyes and his angular face held dignity. How one interprets evolution is not important for most of us, Miss McMeal, the man said. Each of us must accept the wisdom of God and Christ as our Savior, and evolution will always be a theory for interpretation by science and the preachers. Heretic, someone called out. The man sat down. It's about the children. They shouldn't be teached wrong, a woman said from the back. Other people called out their views. God's will can work through the theory of evolutionism. That would take away God's hand in the creation. Not at all. God's hand is in everything we do and experience, and it could very well be in parts of evolution. So you believe we came from apes? I believe it's possible, but it doesn't lessen my belief in God or in Jesus as my Savior. It's the work of the devil, someone from the rear called out. A short man in a suit and tie stood to Lucy's right. I'm the church's representative to the International Council of Churches, he said. Most of us believe in the new doctrine that evolution is an unproven theory and should be taught in the schools only as theory next to truths of creationism, as the Bible tells us so clearly. He sat down. There were scattered claps in the audience. Another woman stood. It ain't right teaching evolution to children. It just ain't right. The reverend got down from the table and walked to within a few steps of Lucy. He stared at her. Lucy continued to look to the audience. Thank you, she said. Thank you for your candor. 
but she saw the pockets of ignorance mixed with fear that what is taught might not be true. It was bizarre, really. These beliefs that even 75 years ago were rejected by mainstream America and then were driven back into rural America where, in isolation, they could live mostly unthreatened by reality. And Bain commanded respect from these isolated, stagnant minds. This was why he was in the wilderness of the North Georgia mountains. It's our faith, the Reverend said. It's our faith that lets us agree to disagree. Praise God, someone said. But I'd be interested, Miss McNeil, the Reverend said, in what you really think. Lucy stepped forward to address the audience. I don't pretend to know the answers to the questions you've posed. I do know much of the science, and it is theory, a theory that has a great deal of evidence. But I do not know how God's will does or does not relate to evolution. I will not presume to know the answer. Do you believe in God, the Reverend said? That's your problem. You don't have the faith. I admire your faith, Reverend. It is a special gift to have faith as strong as yours. She looked to the audience to include them. Will you accept God? Will you take Jesus as your Savior, he said. A few amens filled the silence. Lucy smiled and took the Reverend's hand in both of hers. She pumped it slowly. I owe you a lot, Reverend. Of course I'll consider. And to you, my thanks for bringing it to the forefront of my life. I will have important decisions to make. She let go of his hand and moved to regain her seat. The Reverend threw up his hands. Praise God! He rocked back and forth. Lucy watched. Praise God and let us pray. Lucy lowered her head slightly but did not take her eyes from him as he led the followers in the Lord's Prayer. Chapter 15 Lucy Lucy dressed for a day at the office, even though at the compound all the leaders and followers were casual. Bain was not in his office at the time he had agreed to meet with her. She found him in an exercise room off the basketball court. He was in a session with a personal trainer, a woman in her mid-fifties, fit and attractive. He apologized but insisted he finish his training session, and he joined Lucy a few minutes later outside at a weathered picnic table, one of two at either side of the door. He motioned for her to sit on the seat planks and sat opposite. "'I'm tired of being kept waiting,' Lucy said." Apologies, Bain said. I simply forgot. As I get older, I get more intense about health. Lucy stared. These are serious charges against you. It's about time you took them seriously. I take them very seriously, he said. Lucy relaxed a little. My job would be a lot easier if you acted like all this meant something to you. Bain smiled. You're right, he said. I'll do better. She leaned forward slightly. I finished a deposition on your accuser. Alan and I were impressed with her demeanor. She'll make many people believers. Do you really think I'm guilty, Counselor? 
I'm a lawyer and a defender. What I think is not relevant. Guilt or innocence has to affect the quality of your defense. Exactly why I don't make judgments. Bain laughed. Don't even suggest that you and your paternalistic partner haven't discussed my presumed guilt. Lucy shrugged. Do you know what that girl says you did? Made love to her, Bain said. That's all, no details? He shook his head. She or her mother have never confronted you, Lucy asked. Neither said anything. It was a surprise to me, Bain said. Off the record here. I may not be judging guilt or innocence, but I damn sure am intent on determining whether you lie. They didn't confront me, Counselor. Do you believe that? Lucy paused, passing an unspoken judgment on his honesty. She did believe him, at least about this. You never touched her in suggestive ways, she asked. Never had sex with her? I do not seek, nor would I enjoy sex with underage girls. But you enjoyed sex with older women other than your wife. My adult sex life is not important, Bain said. Really? You think the prosecutor will not bring up your infidelities in court? He's not an idiot. Making love to my wife was always from the first something you need to know nothing about. I assume it was unpleasant then. Do not draw conclusions, counselor. But you haven't contacted her for years. I was happy to be rid of her. Because she would not accept Christ as her Savior in the ways that would satisfy you. Ridiculous, Bain said. Was that the reason? Answer me directly. You'll be required to in court. It had nothing to do with her faith, Bain said. Was it sex then? Not satisfying? Too infrequent? It's more complicated than that. I'm not sure, looking back, I ever knew my own reasons very well. And I've suppressed a lot, forgotten the rest. Why not reconcile for the children? I get angry when I think about her. After ten years? There were things about her I can't forgive. You're a Christian. Forgiveness is what you preach. But between you and me, Ms. McMill... Forgiveness cannot always be willed. It should not be a problem for a God-fearing, above-average, self-reliant preacher of the gospel. She makes me angry. Memories of her make me angry. Untruths she said about me irritate me. What she's done to our children infuriates me. They hate me. I pray for forgiveness, but it doesn't come on the emotional level. How do you feel about this girl who has accused you? Can you forgive her? Not necessary, Counselor. I don't blame her. She is not evil. So how do you explain her accusations, Lucy asked. I helped her. She's told me that many times. I think she would have been dead or on the streets now as a drug-ridden prostitute. I helped her see a better way. I think she appreciated that. And she saw me as a father figure she barely had in her early life. And I think she confused gratitude with desire. 
But why accuse you of something you say didn't happen? I don't know. My guess is her mother let her into the claim. The girl is really good and kind in many ways. I think your mother saw the opportunity for attention and financial gain. We'll never prove that. I'd look for previous behavior. I'd be surprised if she hasn't tried this before. The girl? I would think the mother. A secretary from Bain's office ran up. You have a call, she said. Take a message. It's central. They're holding. Excuse me, counselor, Bain said to Lucy. He followed the secretary back to the office. Lucy stood and leaned against the picnic table, her arms crossed. He did not return after half an hour. He was too busy to see her when she went to his office. Angry with what she felt was another slight from Bain, she returned to Atlanta. Chapter 16 Luke Luke rarely saw Lucy at home for meals, and they almost never ate together anymore. Mrs. Crowder had become as family, and now took permanent care of Jennifer. Luke found Lucy affectionate when they were home alone together. She talked about her work. She was close to jury selection in the Howard Bain trial. Lucy had become awkward around Jennifer, though, seemingly afraid to compete with Jennifer's open affection for Mrs. Crowder. Lucy fed Jennifer infrequently and rarely bathed her. On weekends, as Jennifer began to walk and could feed herself, Lucy let her stay with Agnes and Elizabeth, which gave Mrs. Crowder a break, too. Elizabeth had a separate garage apartment with five rooms behind the family house, and Jennifer spent nights with her. For Lucy and Luke, it left time to spend alone together. One night when Jennifer was away, they were both in bed and awake. I miss Jennifer when she's gone, Luke said. Do you wish you had children with Samantha, Lucy said. I don't know. There was so little love between us. Lucy reached and found Luke's hand. Is it still painful, thinking about Samantha? Not painful, he thought. But it was not pleasant. The pleasing details of dating and getting married had long ago been pushed from his memory by the anger and distrust that had become constant between Samantha and him. Did you love her? Lucy asked before he spoke. Luke hesitated. She never asked about Samantha before. Why now? It was an attraction at first, he said, and a need for what I thought was love that kept me with her. Life was hard for her. She spent every waking moment trying to convince the world she was a person she was not. Why do you ask? Did she love you? Lucy asked again. She was incapable of loving, I think. She thought she could, but she was too insincere to think about others in loving ways. Love is strange, Lucy said softly. She seemed to be searching for some understanding that he couldn't fathom. He forced any doubt about her reasons from his mind and enjoyed her rare moment of affection. Chapter 17 Luke A few weeks later, 
Luke and Lucy had breakfast together. She ate bran flakes standing at the counter, and he had eggs sitting at the table. It was a Saturday, and he asked her about the Reverend Bain trial, which was taking up all of her professional time now. He's an asshole, Luke, but I don't think he did it. Depositions are still going, and the girl has an active sexual history we can document. Will that soften the underage thing? I doubt it. We'll prove he didn't do it. Mrs. Crowder brought Jennifer in and strapped her in a high chair, and then left to change linens on the crib. Lucy poured a few Cheerios onto the high chair tray. Jennifer started picking them up one by one and getting them to her mouth. Lucy lowered her voice. I don't like Mrs. Crowder's attitude. This was a first for Luke. Seems pleasant to me, he said. She's too lenient. How can you say that? We're never around when Jennifer's awake. The woman is whining, Luke. I don't want you to do that. Didn't you hear it? It's not good. He didn't remember, and he said so. I think we should get rid of her. Who would we get? We'll find someone. It can't be that hard. I think Jennifer likes her, Luce. They seem happy together. You don't know that any more than I do. I see them together on weekends when you're away. Lucy paused for a moment as her anger mounted. Don't start, Luke. He touched a nerve again. More coffee, he said. I can't help being away, she said. Agreed, he said. You are being critical, Luke. He stood up and poured a cup of coffee for himself, his back to both of them. That's not true, he said. You were. I was not, he said, still looking at her. Lucy stood up. You feed Jennifer. I'm going to the office. For the day? She said nothing. It's Saturday, he said. She walked toward the bedroom. He listened to the shower and the sounds of her getting clothes from the walk-in closet. She left without saying goodbye. Lucy spent Saturday and Sunday away from home, and Luke didn't see her until Monday night. She was exhausted, but surprisingly loving to Jennifer, and oddly pleasant to Mrs. Crowder, as if she'd forgotten about her being whiny. And Lucy didn't bring it up again. Chapter 18 Elizabeth Elizabeth went to Aunt Patty's porch for dinner with Clay Palmer, the 48-year-old bachelor minister at the Presbyterian Church. She immediately noticed he seemed quieter than usual. This was one of their favorite restaurants, and he was usually chatty to the extreme. Clay greeted her on the restaurant steps and asked her how her mother was. She's fine, Clay. She's worried about her granddaughter. I wish Lucy could bring little Jennifer to church on Sundays, Clay said. It's never too young to start. Lucy has no time for religion, Elizabeth said. Does she denounce God? He'd asked it before, many times, actually. More apathy than rejection, Elizabeth said. Clay touched Elizabeth's arm to direct her to their reserve table. The receptionist hurried to lead them. Lucy's busy with her practice, and Luke has to spend most of his time at the hospital. Who takes care of that grandchild? 
They've hired a live-in nanny, a widow with grown children. They were at the table and Clay held the chair for Elizabeth. Would you like a wine menu, the receptionist said. Yes, of course, Elizabeth said. She looked for a frown on Clay's face. He abstained from alcohol. She didn't really care for most wines, but she didn't like Clay's repetitive rants against the evils of drink. She'd ordered the wine to provoke him a little on something she thought he took too seriously. If Clay realized she didn't agree with his platitudes, maybe they would be less frequently expressed. She ordered a Sauvignon Blanc. Clay ordered, emphatically, a cranberry juice without ice. She did not like the taste of cranberry juice. Clay talked of his upcoming sermon as they had salads. He recycled most of his sermons, but he felt strongly now about war, and he had decided to write a sermon on the necessity of peace in the world. She listened to his argument to progress slowly, and she found her mind wandering. How self-centered Clay was, in a kind, almost insincere way, that was more boring than offensive. They went to church functions together, and were thought of as a couple by most of the parishioners, she was sure. They went to an occasional movie, and he invited her out to dinner every few weeks. I've come to believe war is a necessity, Clay said. Elizabeth tuned back in. That seemed a new thought for Clay. For salvation, she teased. Clay did not see the humor. For the advancement of society, he said. For men, she said. Women, too. Look to history. Women have directed armies for their purposes. Elizabeth put her fork down and wiped her mouth with her napkin. Really? Who exactly are you referring to? Not Helen of Troy, I hope. She could hardly be considered a warmonger. She was a victim of men's desires. I wasn't thinking of her. More of Cleopatra. But the Romans attacked her, didn't they? She led the response. That Mark Anthony joined her to fight the Romans shows the degree of power and respect she had as a politician and a warrior. What's your point, Clay? Elizabeth asked. Clay frowned. That conflict is a part of human existence, men and women. War just happens to relate to men because they historically were the political leaders for the most part. But there are war tendencies in humans, male and female, just at different levels. Aren't you a little uncomfortable with the religious wars of the Crusades? Those were hardly induced by women. Elizabeth sipped her wine and picked up her fork again. Clay sighed with exasperation. I'm talking about conflict, not just territorial battles and invasions. Conflict with the butcher over the price of a ham bone. Conflict with a neighbor over the height of a fence. Conflict with a card dealer who sold you a lemon. Elizabeth shook her head. I don't get how you want to bring individual conflict into a religious context for a sermon about a need for world peace. War is among groups. You're going to use individual conflict to explain the devastation of war among nations? She paused. If you're going to preach about a world peace and how religion will play a major role, you need to stay on topic. 
She sipped more wine, waiting for him to respond. How common this was between them on their night-out discussions, generated by their disagreements about almost everything. He even questioned the strength of her faith at times. He suspected she didn't believe in God or Jesus as her Savior. Well, she had never been sure about God's existence. She went to church to be with her mother, with other people, people generally pleasant to be with, and to volunteer when she could. That was important. But she did not see her church going as laying bricks for a pathway to heaven. That was the way Clay saw his faith, although he would deny it. He believed church a necessity for eternal presence. Frankly, she thought that was infantile thinking, but would never say so. You're right, Clay said. I need to find ways for the church and its teaching to prevent war before it starts and intervene when it occurs. He seemed deflated. Of course, individual human conflict can help to explore ways to prevent political, racial, and religious wars, she said in conciliation. I didn't mean that. But there is a big step between understanding the reasons for conflict and war and the actions needed to prevent war, some of which may have nothing to do with religion or religious institutions. Clay smiled. Religion is essential, he said. You're wrong there, Elizabeth. I need to focus on the role of the church in world peace. Keep it objective. Find actions that will promote peace. Do more than just speaking out from the safety of the sequestered pulpit. Elizabeth laughed. You sound like the church will go to war. Now that's not what I meant, he said with irritation. But he saw her smile. You were teasing me again. He took her hand. I like being with you, he said. Elizabeth knew she should say something, but she felt at this moment that she could not honestly tell him she liked the last few minutes. His thoughts were tiny rocks on a barren plain, his emotions tepid, stagnant pools, his ambition a dead battery. She wondered why she went out with him on these excursions and she determined this was the last time. There was no other male in her life, but she would not let that make her resort to letting Clay take up her time. She could find other interests. She moved her hand from under his and signaled the waitress. Another glass of wine, please. She thanked God he talked about sports now. He loved the yellow jackets, and she barely listened, distracted by an idea for a character in another children's book and without need to respond. As they lingered over coffee, guilt touched her. She shouldn't have been so critical. Clay was truly a good man, if not dynamic, and she had enjoyed many evenings with him. She smiled at him. This has been so much fun, Elizabeth said. Let's do it again soon. On me next time. Clay laughed. Of course we'll do it. But these are my treats. Clay walked her to the car after they finished. She unlocked the car, and as she went to open the door, he took her hand away from the handle with both of his. I've been trying to say it all evening, Clay said. She looked at him puzzled. I love you, Elizabeth. Will you marry me? She couldn't speak. 
Her feelings for Clay were so far from marriage that she never anticipated a moment like this. She felt awkward, unprepared, frightened at the lack of response that eluded her. She swallowed. I'm honored, she said. Now he took both her hands in his, as if he wanted to hold her. Say yes. Please say yes. She could not embrace him. I, I don't know what to say, she said. She took back her hands. Of course it's a surprise. I'm so clumsy here in this parking lot. I should have told you earlier. And you don't have to say anything now. Just think about it. She felt a panicky need to be away from him. Clay, that's so sweet. Of course I'll think about it. She opened the door and slid into the driver's seat. Call me he said. She hesitated before inserting the key in the ignition. Sure, she said. Soon, he asked. She wanted to smile but couldn't. Soon, she said, and powered up the engine. Thanks for the evening, he said. She nodded and closed the door. She could see the disappointment on his face. He stood to one side as she backed out of the space. She was obsessed at how poorly she had responded. She jolted over a speed bump. He had blindsided her, and she had not done well. Agnes came to Elizabeth's garage apartment a few minutes after Elizabeth had arrived. Elizabeth had taken off her dress and put on a robe. She met Agnes at the door. Well, her mother said. Well, what? Her mother made a move to enter. But Elizabeth didn't move, blocking her way. Did you accept? her mother asked. He asked me, you know. He told me tonight was the night. I don't want to talk about it now, Elizabeth said. You couldn't find a better husband. Please, mother. Good night. She closed the door. Elizabeth called Clay the next day and told him that she wasn't ready for marriage. She thanked him for his kindness in asking her. Her mother said she was making the mistake of her life. Elizabeth told her mother not to invite Clay to dinner, which she was sure was on her mother's mind. Chapter 19 Luke Sandra Perez was not reinstated. Eileen was able to find her a position where she could finish her training, and within two weeks Sandra had moved with her children to Oregon. School administration would not embrace the obvious unfairness of her treatment, and Sandra decided not to start a long fight for justice when the result might be months or even years away from advancing her career. Eileen and Luke loaned her moving expenses, which neither school would support, and Luke helped her load her belongings into a U-Haul trailer on her last Saturday in Atlanta. For weeks, Luke heard nothing about the entire affair until he met A.J. in the hall one morning. A.J. insisted that they meet. We can use my office, Luke said. A.J. gave him a determined glare and shook his head saying they should go separately and meet in five minutes on the third floor parking level. In the garage, they walked away from the elevators and up a ramp so that A.J. could see the entire floor and the elevators, too. I'm being investigated, he said. I've been warned by my lawyers to suspect all types of eavesdropping. 
For what? Luke asked. The surgery thing. Taylor Grimes is the lawyer. He's got a copy of the patient's chart. No one knows where it came from, A.J. said. What difference does it make, Luke asked. They're going to use it as proof it was the wrong eye. I made the decision to operate at the time, so of course the old chart would be different. Luke wasn't sure about all the details of the case. Most of the surgeons had not discussed what they knew about it, although many of the non-surgeons were thriving on rumor. Sandra's doing fine, Luke said. A.J. shook his head. She could have been the one to start the trouble. She's capable of leaking that chart. Luke didn't think she was capable, but he didn't see any advantage to argue. A.J. swept his gaze 180 degrees, but saw nothing suspicious. I need your help, Luke. The dean has appointed the hospital CEO to be chair of an investigative committee. It's part of the school's quality assurance response. You'll be on that committee. I don't want to be on a committee, Luke said. You won't have a choice. They're requiring every full professor to serve. I'll claim conflict of interest, Luke said. You're my father-in-law. It might work, but I need you there, A.J. stared intently. I need to know what comes down in that committee. That would be not only unethical, but wrong. It will help the lawyers map a strategy before it goes too far, A.J. continued. I'm uncomfortable, Luke said. Nothing illegal. I'm not asking you to do that. Just keep me informed. It'll probably come to nothing, Luke said. I don't believe that, A.J. said. Luke said nothing more, determined to not serve by claiming conflict of interest. When you contact me from now on about anything, A.J. said, be sure it's secure. They left separately. A.J. moving slowly and peering around with paranoid glances as he left. Luke made the argument to the hospital CEO appointed by the dean of the medical school that he would not be able to serve on a committee investigating his father-in-law. There were a few more valid reasons for not serving. The CEO said it was a fact-finding committee to make a report, not pass judgment. I tell you, Luke, he said, all but one of the committee members made the same argument, some sort of conflict of interest. I can't accept it. The job has to be done. At the first committee meeting, assignments were made and resources allocated. Luke was to investigate A.J.'s interaction with referring physicians, which was in question because of frequent caustic and demeaning replies to referring physicians about their patients. A non-surgeon neuro-ophthalmologist would investigate the wrong eye case, determine as many facts as possible. The pathologist was to investigate a charge of excessive surgery. The plastic stock was to rule out any hint of racial discrimination in hiring practices or in patterns of patient care. They had three weeks until the next meeting, a meeting for progress reports. A final report would be ready for the dean in six weeks, no exceptions. Chapter 20 Elizabeth Lucy spent days at a time at the compound in North Georgia, preparing the Bain defense. Mrs. Crowder had become ill, still staying with Jennifer, but unable to attend her to Lucy and Luke's satisfaction. Mrs. Crowder had diabetes and heart disease, and one evening, 
when Luke had an emergency surgery and Lucy was five hours away in the mountains, Mrs. Crowder dialed 911 and collapsed. She was still unconscious as she was taken to the hospital. Luke asked Agnes to take care of Jennifer until he could get free. Agnes took Jennifer back to her house, and Elizabeth agreed to take care of her for the night. The next day, Luke found a temporary replacement nanny, and Lucy had returned to be sure Jennifer would be all right. Mrs. Crowder returned three days later, her diabetes under control. Lucy had to return to Bain's territory and left as soon as she was sure Mrs. Crowder could function adequately. A few days later, Agnes and Elizabeth had breakfast together. I know you like having Jennifer here, Agnes said. Elizabeth remained silent. She dreaded her mother's early morning philosophies and homilies. On most days, Elizabeth ate in the apartment alone. We should bring Jennifer here to stay, Agnes said. She can't be happy in that condo with a stranger taking care of her. Lucy wouldn't allow it, Elizabeth said. Her mother had long ago ignored Lucy's needs and desires. She had barely said more than a few words to her for months. She'll start talking in coherent sentences soon, Agnes said. She needs family around. She needs someone brighter, healthier, and wiser than that old woman. That's hardly fair, mother. It's Luke who would see the need. He's the one to convince. Elizabeth had cared for Jennifer enough that she saw the harm of her learning around a declining woman. And Lucy was not paying Jennifer the attention she needed from her mother. As Elizabeth continued to think about Jennifer, she knew she had to do something. She'd talk to Luke, but it would be delicate and preferably without Lucy around. She needed to wait until the right moment when Luke would be receptive. Chapter 21 Lucy The Bain trial was short. Lucy met with McCormick within hours as the appeal was being prepared. It had to do with that girl, McCormick said. She shouldn't have been allowed to take the stand. I wish I had a man for a judge, Lucy said. McCormick didn't look up from the newspaper headline he was reading. The press crucified Bain. They branded him far right, but he's not political, at least in a public way. That's bullshit, Lucy. The church is political, and it's right wing. You don't know. Don't tell me they don't push candidates of the faith. Name one. Well, I haven't kept up. Don't accuse him, then. What's with this? He's a client, proven guilty. You're acting like you're sweet on the guy. Lucy flushed with anger. That's sexist. Really? I'm not sweet on a client, and you know it. You wouldn't even say that to a man. It's not just me, Lucy. Most in the firm have wondered why you spent so much time at the retreat. You handed off two other cases, all to work away from the office. Few could understand that. It was the only way. He's a difficult client, Lucy said. Are you sure you want to handle the appeal? There are some tough times coming along. What exactly is going on here, Alan? Are you speaking for the firm? McCormick took a deep breath and exhaled. 
It's rumored you've been sleeping with a man, he said. Bain's people have approached Avery Shepard for the appeal. I doubt you'll even be on it, and I'm pretty sure the firm will be off the case soon. We're sure Shepard will base part of the appeal on the quality of the defense. The defense was perfect, Lucy said. Not if the lawyer had sex with the client. That's outrageous. And unethical. That's not what I meant. Nothing about the appeal will be outrageous. It's only outrageous to you. Lucy slumped in the chair away from McCormick. Is it you or the firm, she asked. Senior partners all agree, McCormick said. Is this a reprimand, Alan? McCormick shook his head from side to side. You could be disbarred. I've done a lot for this firm. Everyone knows that, he said. There is no proof. McCormick didn't respond. He placed the appeal papers on the desk and stood. The facts will soon be public. Help me here, Ellen. We've been friends now for seven years. Lucy watched his face for some sign of emotion, but he was impassive. There is a generous severance package. All the partners want the best for you. And what if nothing happens? McCormick walked to the door. Tell me, if no charges are brought, Lucy said. The damage is done, Lucy. No matter what happens, the firm's hand is forced. There is no alternative. Lucy drove directly to Bain's mountain retreat. It was after 1 a.m. when she went to his suite of rooms set off from the main complex. Storm clouds covered the sky. She let herself in with her key through a back, partially concealed access. He was sitting in the dark in the living room. She sat on the sofa to the left of his wing chair. She could not sense his mood, his face covered in shadows. As the silence continued, her anger mounted. You told them. How could you have done that? You failed, Bain said. I didn't fail. The jury found you guilty. That's not a failure. That's an expression of their belief as to your guilt or innocence. For all I know, they were right. Bain spoke softly, a sharp contrast to her angry words. You screwed up the defense. That girl should never have testified. And your argument was unconvincing, to say the least. I'm fired, Howard. The firm let me go. They think you hired another lawyer for the appeal. I think you told them about us to make that appeal valid. I will never go to prison, he said. You took another lawyer without talking to me. He's not hired yet that I know. But you want a new lawyer? Bain paused. Yes, he said. Lucy stood, wanting to hit him. The rain began pelting the windows, drumming on the roof. She could not hear if he said anything. She was shocked at the violence she wanted to do. She forced herself to relax, still standing. Bain stood and walked into the bedroom. She followed. His lovemaking was wordless, ritual, mechanical, violent, and even during her pain, she wondered at her arousal and the ecstasy of his domination.
Chapter 22 Elizabeth At eight o'clock, Elizabeth came home to her garage apartment after a book signing for her new illustrated children's book. Her mother was sitting on a sofa in the living room. Elizabeth switched on the lights. Agnes's head was back, her eyes closed, her arms splayed, her feet straight out, and bent at the waist to fit the curve of the cushions. Mother! Agnes kept her eyes closed. Don't shout! Agnes's left cheek was purple, and a few drops of blood pooled in the pinna of her ear. What happened? I'm leaving your father. Elizabeth had heard this many times before usually after some boisterous fight over nothing of any importance she could discover. You're hurt? I can't hear. Elizabeth went to the kitchen and wet a dish towel. She wiped the blood from the ear and folded the towel and placed it on her mother's bruises. She sat down next to her and took her hand. Elizabeth loved her mother, in spite of her mother's crankiness and smoldering exasperation and her refusal to listen. Tell me, Mother. I need to know what to do. It's nothing. Did Daddy do this to you? I'm no longer married to your father. I'm filing for divorce. Does it hurt? Elizabeth asked. I will not stay in the same house with him. Never again. Did you fall? You might have a concussion, a brain hemorrhage. I told him I was tired of his arrogance. I'm going to call an ambulance. No, no. If you must call, call Dr. Amherst. Thirty minutes later, Dr. Emery Amherst arrived. He examined Agnes, who was now groggy. Her speech slowed. What happened? he asked Elizabeth. I don't know. Dr. Amherst asked Agnes specific questions, but now she was unable to respond. He checked her pupils for a second time. He evoked reflexes with a hammer. He took her blood pressure. She needs to go to Piedmont. I'll call an ambulance and wait here to go with her. I'll call the neurosurgeon, too. She may need surgery. Can I go with you? I'll be sure you can, he said. I'll be right back, she said. Elizabeth ran to the main house. She found A.J. in his study. He was sitting behind his desk reading a book on his crossed legs. She stood before him. You hit mother, she said. The doctor wants to know what happened. Please, Elizabeth. She's going to the hospital. She may need surgery. There is nothing I need to do. Did you hit her? Do you really think I would ever hit your mother? She fell. Elizabeth was breathless. The way you treat us. He closed his book deliberately. Don't start, Elizabeth. Your mother brought it on herself. She didn't hit herself in the face. My God, she had blood coming out her ear. I told you, she fell. Don't dramatize everything. It's an irritating trait. She's going to the hospital. She can barely speak. A.J. looked at Elizabeth impassively, controlling some deep anger she knew she could never fathom. I'm sure she'll be all right, he said. You should pray to God she'll be all right. I can never forgive you, she tensed. What have you done? He didn't answer. She gathered her thoughts, forcing herself to calm. 
She could do nothing to him. She wanted him to suffer as her mother had suffered. But he had no feelings. He could not be hurt. When she left, he was reading an open book on his desk, as if she had not been in his presence. She rejoined her mother and the doctor as the ambulance was backing into the drive. Agnes was operated for a subdural hemorrhage. She was semi-conscious for two days and then barely coherent for another three. Elizabeth stayed with her mother, leaving only to get fresh clothes, toiletries, and other essentials. She talked to her father, but he claimed heavy workload as an excuse not to visit. Luke visited daily, which gave her comfort. When her mother was home, they hired a full-time nursing service for 24-hour care and surveillance. Her father's crass insensitivities to her mother enraged Elizabeth and forced her to bottle her emotions for a while. But finally, when her father was home early enough, working in his study, she went in to talk. She had no plan. She needed only to relieve her mounting anger with a father she could no longer like, much less love. I'm frightfully busy, A.J. said to her as she walked into his study. She closed the door. I'm your daughter. I deserve a few moments of your time. She sat down in a chair, rigid, with space between her back and the upholstery. Her eyes remained fixed on A.J. Don't start, Elizabeth. You've been a whiner your entire life. It's not easy for me now, and I won't put up with your self-righteous judgments. You've lost the respect of your family, she started. But I'm wrong. You never had respect for any of us. A.J. shook his head. You treated Mother horribly, and not just now, always. You have no right to make any judgments about your mother and me. I've lived with your arrogance my entire life. That gives me the right to tell you the truth, as you see it. And that's not valuable? A.J. paused. No, Elizabeth, it's not valuable. You almost killed Mother. That's one truth you have to deal with. Don't be stupid. I'm not stupid. You should be prosecuted. You're dull, Elizabeth. You think like a mechanical clock buried in quicksand. Like your mother. Mother has always given you everything she could. It's not been easy. And not because she's stupid. Don't be so emotional. It's not becoming. Every waking moment... Mother has been working to make your life better. Really? You truly think your mother is responsible for my success? She's more than you deserve. She's obstinate and irritating. And that's why you hit her? Stop it. It wasn't like that. What was it like? What exactly was it like? Your mother can be unreasonable. You were fighting? A.J. pounded the desk in a burst of anger. She was screaming. It was none of her business. What were you doing, Father? Why was she screaming? A.J. paused, trying to control his mounting anger. She demanded support for Lucy. What support? I've cut Lucy off. Closed her bank accounts. Dissolved her endowment. I've disinherited her. Elizabeth moaned. My God, Father, why? She disgraced us. You've disgraced us. Don't say that, Elizabeth. Don't ever say that. You've ruined Lucy. 
His face was flushed now, and Elizabeth backed away a little, pushing the chair back with her feet. I've given Lucy everything, and you too. Don't be ridiculous. I'm not being ridiculous. She's better than you, Elizabeth. She's prettier, smarter. She's everything you should have been. Elizabeth flinched at the accusation. She had always thought he had never really tolerated either of them, but she had always believed he thought more of Lucy's abilities than her own. Why abandon her now, she asked. She's been disbarred, adulterous, disloyal to her family. She's adopted by you. That's always hung in your craw, hasn't it? Her adoption. That you were better than she. You're your mother, Elizabeth. You'll never equal up to Lucy. Elizabeth considered. In truth, although she didn't like to think about it, A.J. equating Lucy to his real daughter had never really set well with her. But what difference did it make? Stop thinking about it. He was only trying to hurt her. If you think so much of her, Elizabeth said, treat her as family now. We are not the same, but she does not deserve to be treated as evil. I warned her about that fraud of a preacher, and she wouldn't listen. That's no reason to disinherit her, even if she's not your own. Treat her as family, for God's sake. A.J. stood up and leaned forward, his hands on the desk. He was trembling. She is family, A.J. said. Not real family. Stop arguing. You've taken care of her as family, and you've always been jealous. It has nothing to do with that. Elizabeth shut her eyes and held her hands to her ears. She's my daughter, he said. Do you get that? Elizabeth felt a void in her heart that might suck her in from the real world. That can't be true, she said. Oh, wouldn't you like that? She was born to a woman in Puerto Rico before you were conceived. A.J. calmed somewhat and sank back in his chair. Does Mother know? Mother knows nothing. And Lucy? A.J. shook his head no. Elizabeth could find no more words. She needed to destroy him. But she couldn't do violence. And he was right. She was not smart enough to hurt him with words. There was nothing she could do. She stood without looking at him and went to the door. Elizabeth, she heard him say to her back, but she did not hesitate. She was sure he'd admonish her, tell her to never break confidences. She might not be able to bear that. He said no more that she heard, and she did not return, although she knew he had moved to the door and was watching her. Please join me for the installment two of The Spirit of Want on podcast number 33. Novels and short stories of William H. Coles are also available on Kindle, ebook, audio, print, and online. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. This podcast is a production of storyandliteraryfiction.com. <laughs>